Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Read by William Roberts. Reptiles are abhorrent because of their cold body, pale color, cartilaginous skeleton, filthy skin, fierce aspect, calculating eye, offensive smell, harsh voice, squalid habitation, and terrible venom. Wherefore their creator has not exerted his powers to make many of them. Linnaeus, 1797. You cannot recall a new form of life. Erwin Chargaff, 1972. Introduction. The InGen Incident. The late 20th century has witnessed a scientific gold rush of astonishing proportions, the headlong and furious haste to commercialize genetic engineering. This enterprise has proceeded so rapidly, with so little outside commentary, that its dimensions and implications are hardly understood at all. Biotechnology promises the greatest revolution in human history. By the end of this decade, it will have outdistanced atomic power and computers in its effect on our everyday lives. In the words of one observer, biotechnology is going to transform every aspect of human life, our medical care, our food, our health, our entertainment, our very bodies. Nothing will ever be the same again. It's literally going to change the face of the planet. But the biotechnology revolution differs in three important respects from past scientific transformations. First, it is broad-based. America entered the atomic age through the work of a single research institution at Los Alamos. It entered the computer age through the efforts of about a dozen companies. But biotechnology research is now carried out in more than 2,000 laboratories in America alone. 500 corporations spend $5 billion a year on this technology. Second, much of the research is thoughtless or frivolous. Efforts to engineer paler trout for better visibility in the stream, square trees for easier lumbering, and injectable scent cells so you'll always smell of your favorite perfume may seem like a joke, but they are not. Indeed, the fact that biotechnology can be applied to the industries traditionally subject to the vagaries of fashion, such as cosmetics and leisure activities, heightens concern about the whimsical use of this powerful new technology. Third, the work is uncontrolled. No one supervises it. No federal laws regulate it. There is no coherent government policy in America or anywhere else in the world. And because the products of biotechnology range from drugs to farm crops to artificial snow, an intelligent policy is difficult. But most disturbing is the fact that no watchdogs are found among scientists themselves. It is remarkable that nearly every scientist in genetics research is also engaged in the commerce of biotechnology. There are no detached observers. Everybody has a stake. The commercialization of molecular biology is the most stunning ethical event in the history of science, and it has happened with astonishing speed. For 400 years since Galileo, science has always proceeded as a free and open inquiry into the workings of nature. Scientists have always ignored national boundaries, holding themselves above the transitory concerns of politics and even wars. Scientists have always rebelled against secrecy in research and have even frowned on the idea of patenting their discoveries, seeing themselves as working to the benefit of all mankind. 
And for many generations, the discoveries of scientists did indeed have a peculiarly selfless quality. When in 1953, two young researchers in England, James Watson and Francis Crick, deciphered the structure of DNA, their work was hailed as a triumph of the human spirit, of the centuries-old quest to understand the universe in a scientific way. It was confidently expected that their discovery would be selflessly extended to the greater benefit of mankind. Yet that did not happen. Thirty years later, nearly all of Watson and Crick's scientific colleagues were engaged in another sort of enterprise entirely. Research in molecular genetics had become a vast, multi-billion dollar commercial undertaking, and its origins can be traced not to 1953, but to April 1976. That was the date of a now famous meeting in which Robert Swanson, a venture capitalist, approached Herbert Boyer, a biochemist at the University of California. The two men agreed to found a commercial company to exploit Boyer's gene splicing techniques. Their new company, Genentech, quickly became the largest and most successful of the genetic engineering startups. Suddenly it seemed as if everyone wanted to become rich. New companies were announced almost weekly, and scientists flocked to exploit genetic research. By 1986, at least 362 scientists, including 64 in the National Academy, sat on the advisory boards of biotech firms. The number of those who held equity positions or consultancies was several times greater. It is necessary to emphasize how significant this shift in attitude actually was. In the past, pure scientists took a snobbish view of business. They saw the pursuit of money as intellectually uninteresting, suited only to shopkeepers. And to do research for industry, even at the prestigious Bell or IBM labs, was only for those who couldn't get a university appointment. Thus, the attitude of pure scientists was fundamentally critical toward the work of applied scientists and to industry in general. Their long-standing antagonism kept university scientists free of contaminating industry ties, and whenever debate arose about technological matters, disinterested scientists were available to discuss the issues at the highest levels. But that is no longer true. There are very few molecular biologists and very few research institutions without commercial affiliations. The old days are gone. Genetic research continues at a more furious pace than ever, but it is done in secret and in haste and for profit. In this commercial climate, it is probably inevitable that a company as ambitious as International Genetic Technologies Incorporated of Palo Alto would arise. It is equally unsurprising that the genetic crisis it created should go unreported. After all, InGen's research was conducted in secret. The actual incident occurred in the most remote region of Central America, and fewer than 20 people were there to witness it. Of those, only a handful survived. Even at the end, when International Genetic Technologies filed for Chapter 11 protection in San Francisco Superior Court on October 5, 1989, the proceedings drew little press attention. It appeared so ordinary. InGen was the third small American bioengineering company to fail that year, and the seventh since 1986. Few court documents were made public since the creditors were Japanese investment consortia such as Hamaguri and Densaka, 
companies which traditionally shun publicity. To avoid unnecessary disclosure, Daniel Ross of Cowan Swain and Ross, counsel for InGen, also represented the Japanese investors. And the rather unusual petition of the vice consul of Costa Rica was heard behind closed doors. Thus, it is not surprising that within a month, the problems of InGen were quietly and amicably settled. Parties to that settlement, including the Distinguished Scientific Board of Advisors, signed a non-disclosure agreement, and none will speak about what happened. But many of the principal figures in the InGen incident are not signatories, and were willing to discuss the remarkable events leading up to those final two days in August 1989 on a remote island off the west coast of Costa Rica. Prologue, the Bite of the Raptor The tropical rain fell in drenching sheets, hammering the corrugated roof of the clinic building, roaring down the metal gutters, splashing on the ground in a torrent. Roberta Carter sighed and stared out the window. From the clinic, she could hardly see the beach or the ocean beyond, cloaked in low fog. This wasn't what she had expected when she had come to the fishing village of Bahia Anasco on the west coast of Costa Rica, to spend two months as a visiting physician. Bobby Carter had expected sun and relaxation after two grueling years of residency in emergency medicine at Michael Reese in Chicago. She had been in Bahia Anasco now for three weeks, and it had rained every day. Everything else was fine. She liked the isolation of Bahia Anasco and the friendliness of its people. Costa Rica had one of the 20 best medical systems in the world, and even in this remote coastal village, the clinic was well-maintained, amply supplied. Her paramedic, Manuel Aragon, was intelligent and well-trained. Bobby was able to practice a level of medicine equal to what she had practiced in Chicago. But the rain, the constant, unending rain. Across the examining room, Manuel cocked his head. Listen, he said. Believe me, I hear it, Bobby said. No, listen. And then she caught it. Another sound blended with the rain, a deeper rumble that built and emerged until it was clear. The rhythmic thumping of a helicopter. She thought, they can't be flying in weather like this. But the sound built steadily, and then the helicopter burst low through the ocean fog and roared overhead, circled and came back. She saw the helicopter swing back over the water near the fishing boats, then ease sideways to the rickety wooden dock and back toward the beach. It was looking for a place to land. It was a big-bellied Sikorsky with a blue stripe on the side, with the words, InGen Construction. That was the name of the construction company building a new resort on one of the offshore islands. The resort was said to be spectacular and very complicated. Many of the local people were employed in the construction, which had been going on for more than two years. Bobby could imagine it, one of those huge American resorts with swimming pools and tennis courts, where guests could play and drink their daiquiris without having any contact with the real life of the country. Bobby wondered what was so urgent on that island that the helicopter would fly in this weather. Through the windshield, she saw the pilot exhale in relief as the helicopter settled onto the wet sand of the beach. Uniformed men jumped out and flung open the big side door, she heard frantic shouts in Spanish, and Manuel nudged her. They were calling for a doctor. 
Two black crewmen carried a limp body toward her while a white man barked orders. The white man had a yellow slicker. Red hair appeared around the edges of his Mets baseball cap. Is there a doctor here? He called to her as she ran up. I'm Dr. Carter, she said. The rain fell in heavy drops, pounding her head and shoulders. The red-haired man frowned at her. She was wearing cut-off jeans and a tank top. She had a stethoscope over her shoulder, the bell already rusted from the salt air. Ed Regis, we've got a very sick man here, doctor. Then you better take him to San Jose, she said. San Jose was the capital, just 20 minutes away by air. We would, but we can't get over the mountains in this weather. You have to treat him here. Bobby trotted alongside the injured man as they carried him to the clinic. He was a kid, no older than 18. Lifting away the blood-soaked shirt, she saw a big slashing rip along his shoulder and another on the leg. What happened to him? Construction accident, Ed shouted. He fell. One of the backhoes ran over him. The kid was pale, shivering, unconscious. Manuel stood by the bright green door of the clinic, waving his arm. The men brought the body through and set it on the table in the center of the room. Manuel started an intravenous line, and Bobby swung the light over the kid and bent to examine the wounds. Immediately, she could see that it did not look good. The kid would almost certainly die. A big, tearing laceration ran from his shoulder down his torso. At the edge of the wound, the flesh was shredded. At the center, the shoulder was dislocated, pale bones exposed. A second slash cut through the heavy muscles of the thigh, deep enough to reveal the pulse of the femoral artery below. Her first impression was that his leg had been ripped open. Tell me again about this injury, she said. I didn't see it, Ed said. They say the backhoe dragged him. Because it almost looks as if he was mauled, Bobby Carter said, probing the wound. Like most emergency room physicians, she could remember in detail patients she had seen even years before. She had seen two maulings. One was a two-year-old child who had been attacked by a Rottweiler dog. The other was a drunken circus attendant who had had an encounter with a Bengal tiger. Both injuries were similar. There was a characteristic look to an animal attack. Mauled, Ed said. No, no, it was a backhoe, believe me. Ed licked his lips as he spoke. He was edgy, acting as if he had done something wrong. Bobby wondered why. If they were using inexperienced local workmen on the resort construction, they must have accidents all the time. Manuel said, Do you want lavage? Yes, she said, after you block him. She bent lower, probed the wound with her fingertips. If an earth mover had rolled over him, dirt would be forced deep into the wound, but there wasn't any dirt. Just a slippery, slimy foam and the wound had a strange odor, a kind of rotten stench, a smell of death and decay. She had never smelled anything like it before. How long ago did this happen? An hour. Again, she noticed how tense Ed Regis was. He was one of those eager, nervous types, and he didn't look like a construction foreman, more like an executive. He was obviously out of his depth. Bobby Carter turned back to the injuries. Somehow she didn't think she was seeing mechanical trauma. It just didn't look right. No soil contamination of the wound site, and no crush injury component. Mechanical trauma of any sort, an auto injury, a factory accident, almost always had some component of crushing, but here there was none. Instead, the man's skin was shredded, ripped, across his shoulder, and again across his thigh. It really did look like a maul. On the other hand, most of the body was unmarked, 
which was unusual for an animal attack. She looked again at the head, the arms, the hands. The hands? She felt a chill when she looked at the kid's hands. There were short, slashing cuts on both palms and bruises on the wrists and forearms. She had worked in Chicago long enough to know what that meant. All right, she said, wait outside. Why? Ed said, alarmed. He didn't like that. Do you want me to help him or not, she said, and pushed him out the door and closed it on his face. She didn't know what was going on, but she didn't like it. Manuel hesitated. I continue to wash? Yes, she said. She reached for her little Olympus point-and-shoot. She took several snapshots of the injury, shifting her light for a better view. It really did look like bites, she thought. Then the kid groaned, and she put her camera aside and bent toward him. His lips moved, his tongue thick. Raptor, he said. Losaraptor. At those words, Manuel froze, stepped back in horror. What does it mean? Bobby said. Manuel shook his head. I do not know, doctor. Losaraptor no es español. No? It sounded to her like Spanish. Then please continue to wash him. No, doctor. He wrinkled his nose. Bad smell. And he crossed himself. Bobby looked again at the slippery foam streaked across the wound. She touched it, rubbing it between her fingers. It seemed almost like saliva. The injured boy's lips moved. Raptor, he whispered. In a tone of horror, Manuel said, It bit him. What bit him? Raptor. What's a raptor? It means upia. Bobby frowned. The Costa Ricans were not especially superstitious, but she had heard the Upia mentioned in the village before. They were said to be night ghosts, faceless vampires who kidnapped small children. According to the belief, the Upia had once lived in the mountains of Costa Rica, but now inhabited the islands offshore. Manuel was backing away, murmuring and crossing himself. It is not normal, this smell, he said. It is the Upia. Bobby was about to order him back to work, when the injured youth opened his eyes and sat straight up on the table, Manuel shrieked in terror. The injured boy moaned and twisted his head, looking left and right with wide, staring eyes, and then he explosively vomited blood. He went immediately into convulsions, his body vibrating, and Bobby grabbed for him, but he shuddered off the table onto the concrete floor. He vomited again. There was blood everywhere. Ed opened the door, saying, What the hell's happening? And when he saw the blood, he turned away his hand to his mouth. Bobby was grabbing for a stick to put in the boy's clenched jaws, but even as she did it, she knew it was hopeless. And with a final spastic jerk, he relaxed and lay still. She bent to perform mouth to mouth, but Manuel grabbed her shoulder fiercely, pulling her back. No, he said. The opia will cross over. Manuel, for God's sake, no! He stared at her fiercely. No, you do not understand these things. Bobby looked at the body on the ground and realized that it didn't matter. There was no possibility of resuscitating him. Manuel called for the men who came back into the room and took the body away. Ed appeared, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, muttering, I'm sure you did all you could. And then she watched as the men took the body away, back to the helicopter, and it lifted thunderously up into the sky. It is better, Manuel said. Bobby was thinking about the boy's hands. They had been covered with cuts and bruises in the characteristic pattern of defense wounds. 
She was quite sure he had not died in a construction accident. He had been attacked, and he had held up his hands against his attacker. Where is this island they've come from? she asked. In the ocean, perhaps a hundred, hundred and twenty miles offshore. Pretty far for a resort, she said. Manuel watched the helicopter. I hope they never come back. Well, she thought at least she had pictures. But when she turned back to the table, she saw that her camera was gone. The rain finally stopped later that night. Alone in the bedroom behind the clinic, Bobby thumbed through her tattered paperback Spanish dictionary. The boy had said raptor, and despite Manuel's protests, she suspected it was a Spanish word. Sure enough, she found it in her dictionary. It meant ravisher or abductor. That gave her pause. The sense of the word was suspiciously close to the meaning of upia. Of course, she did not believe in the superstition, and no ghost had cut those hands. What had the boy been trying to tell her? From the next room she heard groans. One of the village women was in the first stage of labor, and Elena Morales, the local midwife, was attending her. Bobby went into the clinic room and gestured to Elena to step outside for a moment. Elena, see, doctor? Do you know what is a raptor? Elena was gray-haired and sixty, a strong woman with a practical no-nonsense air. In the night beneath the stars, she frowned and said, Raptor? Yes, you know this word? See, si, Elena nodded. It means a person who comes in the night and takes away a child. A kidnapper? Yes. A upia? Her whole manner changed. Do not say this word, doctor. Why not? Do not speak of upia now. Elena said firmly, nodding her head toward the groans of the laboring woman. It is not wise to say this word now. But does a raptor bite and cut his victims? Bite and cut? Elena said, puzzled. No, doctor. Nothing like this. A raptor is a man who takes a new baby. She seemed irritated by the conversation, impatient to end it. Elena started back toward the clinic, I will call to you when she is ready, doctor. I think one hour more, perhaps two. Bobby looked at the stars and listened to the peaceful lapping of the surf at the shore. In the darkness, she saw the shadows of the fishing boats anchored offshore. The whole scene was quiet, so normal. She felt foolish to be talking of vampires and kidnapped babies. Bobby went back to her room, remembering again that Manuel had insisted it was not a Spanish word. Out of curiosity, she looked in the little English dictionary. And to her surprise, she found the word there, too. Raptor. Noun. Derivation of Latin raptor plunderer. French raptus. Bird of prey. First Iteration at the earliest drawings of the fractal curve, few clues to the underlying mathematical structure will be seen. Ian Malcolm Almost Paradise Mike Bowman whistled cheerfully as he drove the Land Rover through the Cabo Blanco Biological Reserve on the west coast of Costa Rica. It was a beautiful morning in July, and the road before him was spectacular, hugging the edge of a cliff overlooking the jungle in the blue Pacific According to the guidebooks, Cabo Blanco was unspoiled wilderness, almost a paradise. Seeing it now made Bowman feel as if the vacation was back on track. 
Bowman, a 36-year-old real estate developer from Dallas, had come to Costa Rica with his wife and daughter for a two-week holiday. The trip had actually been his wife's idea. For weeks, Alan had filled his ear about the wonderful national parks of Costa Rica and how good it would be for Tina to see them. Then, when they arrived, it turned out Ellen had an appointment to see a plastic surgeon in San Jose. That was the first Mike Bowman had heard about the excellent and inexpensive plastic surgery available in Costa Rica and all the luxurious private clinics in San Jose. Of course, they'd had a huge fight. Mike felt she'd lied to him, and she had. And he put his foot down about this plastic surgery business. Anyway, it was ridiculous. Ellen was only 30, and she was a beautiful woman. Hell, she'd been homecoming queen her senior year at Rice. And that was not even ten years earlier. But Ellen tended to be insecure and worried. And it seemed as if, in recent years, she had mostly worried about losing her looks. That and everything else. The Land Rover bounced in a pothole, splashing mud. Seated beside him, Ellen said, Mike... Are you sure this is the right road? We haven't seen any other people for hours. There was another car 15 minutes ago, he reminded her. Remember the blue one? Going the other way. Darling, you wanted a deserted beach, he said, and that's what you're gonna get. Ellen shook her head doubtfully. I hope you're right. Yeah, Dad, I hope you're right, said Christina from the back seat. She was eight years old. Trust me, I'm right. He drove in silence a moment. It's beautiful, isn't it? Look at that view. It's beautiful. It's okay, Tina said. Ellen got out a compact and looked at herself in the mirror, pressing under her eyes. She sighed and put the compact away. The road began to descend, and Mike Bowman concentrated on driving. Suddenly, a small black shape flashed across the road, and Tina shrieked, Look! Look! Then it was gone into the jungle. What was it? Ellen asked. A monkey? Maybe a squirrel monkey, Bowman said. Can I count it? Tina said, taking her pencil out. She was keeping a list of all the animals she had seen on her trip as a project for school. I don't know, Mike said doubtfully. Tina consulted the pictures in the guidebook. I don't think it was a squirrel monkey, she said. I think it was just another howler. They had seen several howler monkeys already on their trip. Hey, she said more brightly, according to this book... The beaches of Cabo Blanco are frequented by a variety of wildlife, including howler and white-faced monkeys, three-toed sloths, and coatamundis. You think we'll see a three-toed sloth, Dad? I bet we do. Really? Just look in the mirror. Very funny, Dad. The road sloped downward through the jungle toward the ocean. Mike Bowman felt like a hero when they finally reached the beach a two-mile crescent of white sand, utterly deserted. He parked the Land Rover in the shade of the palm trees that fringed the beach and got out the box lunches. Ellen changed into her bathing suit, saying, Honestly, I don't know how I'm going to get this weight off. You look great, hon. Actually, he felt that she was too thin, but he had learned not to mention that. Tina was already running down the beach. Don't forget you need your sunscreen, Ellen called. Later, Tina shouted over her shoulder. I'm going to see if there's a sloth. Ellen Bowman looked around at the beach and the trees. You think she's all right? Honey, there's nobody here for miles, Mike said. What about snakes? Oh, for God's sake, Mike Bowman said. There's no snakes on a beach. Well, there might be. Honey, he said firmly, snakes are cold-blooded. 
They're reptiles. They can't control their body temperature. It's 90 degrees on that sand. If a snake came out, it'd be cooked. Believe me, there's no snakes on the beach. He watched his daughter scampering down the beach, a dark spot on the white sand. Let her go. Let her have a good time. He put his arm around his wife's waist. Tina ran until she was exhausted, and then she threw herself down in the sand and gleefully rolled to the water's edge. The ocean was warm, and there was hardly any surf at all. She sat for a while, catching her breath, and then she looked back toward her parents in the car to see how far she had come. Her mother waved, beckoning her to return. Tina waved back, cheerfully pretending she didn't understand. Tina didn't want to put sunscreen on, and she didn't want to go back and hear her mother talk about losing weight. She wanted to stay right here and maybe see a sloth. Tina had seen a sloth two days earlier at the zoo in San Jose. It looked like a Muppets character, and it seemed harmless. In any case, it couldn't move fast. She could easily outrun it. Now her mother was calling to her, and Tina decided to move out of the sun, back from the water, to the shade of the palm trees. In this part of the beach, the palm trees overhung a gnarled tangle of mangrove roots, which blocked any attempt to penetrate inland. Tina sat in the sand and kicked the dried mangrove leaves. She noticed many bird tracks in the sand. Costa Rica was famous for its birds. The guidebook said there were three times as many birds in Costa Rica as in all of America and Canada. In the sand, some of the three-toed bird tracks were small and so faint they could hardly be seen. Other tracks were large and cut deeper in the sand. Tina was looking idly at the tracks when she heard a chirping, followed by a rustling in the mangrove thicket. Did sloths make a chirping sound? Tina didn't think so, but she wasn't sure. The chirping was probably some ocean bird. She waited quietly, not moving, hearing the rustling again, and finally she saw the source of the sounds. A few yards away, a lizard emerged from the mangrove roots and peered at her. Tina held her breath. A new animal for her list. The lizard stood up on its hind legs, balancing on its thick tail, and stared at her. Standing like that, it was almost a foot tall, dark green with brown stripes along its back. Its tiny front legs ended in little lizard fingers that wiggled in the air. The lizard cocked its head as it looked at her. Tina thought it was cute, sort of like a big salamander. She raised her hand and wiggled her fingers back. The lizard wasn't frightened. It came toward her, walking upright on its hind legs. It was hardly bigger than a chicken. And like a chicken, it bobbed its head as it walked. Tina thought it would make a wonderful pet. She noticed that the lizard left three-toed tracks that looked exactly like bird tracks. The lizard came closer to Tina. She kept her body still, not wanting to frighten the little animal. She was amazed that it would come so close. But she remembered that this was a national park. All the animals in the park would know that they were protected. This lizard was probably tame. Maybe it even expected her to give it some food. Unfortunately, she didn't have any. Slowly, Tina extended her hand, palm open, to show she didn't have any food. The lizard paused, cocked his head, and chirped. Sorry, Tina said. I just don't have anything. And then, without warning... The lizard jumped up onto her outstretched hand. 
Tina could feel its little toes pinching the skin of her palm, and she felt the surprising weight of the animal's body pressing her arm down. And then the lizard scrambled up her arm toward her face. I just wish I could see her, Ellen Bowman said, squinting in the sunlight. That's all, just see her. I'm sure she's fine, Mike said, picking through the box lunch packed by the hotel. There was unappetizing grilled chicken and some kind of a meat-filled pastry. Not that Ellen would eat any of it. You don't think she'd leave the beach, Ellen said. No, hon, I don't. I feel so isolated here, Ellen said. I thought that's what you wanted, Mike Bowman said. I did. Well, then, what's the problem? I just wish I could see her, is all, Ellen said. Then, from down the beach, carried by the wind, they heard their daughter's voice. She was screaming. Punta Arenas. I think she is quite comfortable now, Dr. Cruz said, lowering the plastic flap of the oxygen tent around Tina as she slept. Mike Bowman sat beside the bed close to his daughter. Mike thought Dr. Cruz was probably pretty capable. He spoke excellent English, the result of training at medical centers in London and Baltimore. Dr. Cruz radiated competence, and the Clinica Santa Maria, the modern hospital in Punta Arenas, was spotless and efficient. But even so, Mike Bowman felt nervous. There was no getting around the fact that his only daughter was desperately ill, and they were far from home. When Mike had first reached Tina, she was screaming hysterically. Her whole left arm was bloody, covered with a profusion of small bites, each the size of a thumbprint, and there were flecks of sticky foam on her arm, like a foamy saliva. He carried her back down the beach. Almost immediately, her arm began to redden and swell. Mike would not soon forget the frantic drive back to civilization, the four-wheel drive Land Rover slipping and sliding up the muddy track into the hills, while his daughter screamed in fear and pain, and her arm grew more bloated and red. Long before they reached the park boundaries, the swelling had spread to her neck, and then Tina began to have trouble breathing. She'll be all right now, Ellen said, staring through the plastic oxygen tent. I believe so, Dr. Cruz said. I have given her another dose of steroids, and her breathing is much easier. And you can see the edema in her arm is greatly reduced. Mike Bowman said, about those bites. We have no identification yet, the doctor said. I myself haven't seen bites like that before, but you'll notice they are disappearing. It's already quite difficult to make them out. Fortunately, I have taken photographs for reference and I have washed her arm to collect some samples of the sticky saliva, one for analysis here, a second to send to the labs in San Jose, and the third we will keep frozen in case it is needed. Do you have the picture she made? Yes, Mike Bowman said. He handed the doctor the sketch that Tina had drawn in response to questions from the admitting officials. This is the animal that bit her? Dr. Cruz said, looking at the picture. Yes, Mike Bowman said. She said it was a green lizard, the size of a chicken or a crow. I don't know of such a lizard, the doctor said. She has drawn it standing on its hind legs. That's right, Mike Bowman said. She said it walked on its hind legs. Dr. Cruz frowned. He stared at the picture a while longer. I am not an expert. I have asked for Dr. Gutierrez to visit us here. He is a senior researcher at the Reserva Biologica de Carrara, which is across the bay, 
Perhaps he can identify the animal for us. Isn't there someone from Cabo Blanco? Bowman asked. That's where she was bitten. Unfortunately not, Dr. Cruz said. Cabo Blanco has no permanent staff, and no researcher has worked there for some time. You were probably the first people to walk on that beach in several months. But I am sure you will find Dr. Gutierrez to be knowledgeable. Dr. Gutierrez turned out to be a bearded man wearing cocky shorts and shirt. The surprise was that he was American. He was introduced to the Bowmans, saying in a soft southern accent, Mr. and Mrs. Bowman, how you doing? Nice to meet you. And then explaining that he was a field biologist from Yale who had worked in Costa Rica for the last five years. Marty Gutierrez examined Tina thoroughly, lifting her arm gently, peering closely at each of the bites with a penlight, then measuring them with a small pocket ruler. After a while, Gutierrez stepped away, nodding to himself as if he had understood something. He then inspected the Polaroids and asked several questions about the saliva, which Cruz told him was still being tested in the lab. Finally, he turned to Mike Bowman and his wife, waiting tensely. I think Tina's going to be fine. I just want to be clear about a few details, he said, making notes in a precise hand. Your daughter says she was bitten by a green lizard, approximately one foot high, which walked upright onto the beach from the mangrove swamp? That's right, yes. And the lizard made some kind of a vocalization? Tina said it chirped or squeaked. Like a mouse, would you say? Yes. Well then, Dr. Gutierrez said, I know this lizard. He explained that of the 6,000 species of lizards in the world, no more than a dozen species walked upright. Of those species, only four were found in Latin America. And judging by the coloration, the lizard could be only one of the four. I am sure this lizard was a Basiliscus amoratus, a striped basilisk lizard, found here in Costa Rica and also in Honduras. Standing on their hind legs, they are sometimes as tall as a foot. Are they poisonous? No, Mrs. Bowman, not at all. Gutierrez explained that the swelling in Tina's arm was an allergic reaction. According to the literature, 14% of people are strongly allergic to reptiles, he said, and your daughter seems to be one of them. She was screaming. She said it was so painful. Probably it was, Gutierrez said. Reptile saliva contains serotonin, which causes tremendous pain. He turned to Cruz. Her blood pressure came down with antihistamines? Yes, Cruz said promptly. Serotonin, Gutierrez said, no question. Still, Ellen Bowman remained uneasy. But why would a lizard bite her in the first place? Lizard bites are very common, Gutierrez said. Animal handlers in zoos get bitten all the time. And just the other day I heard that a lizard had bitten an infant in a crib in Amaloya, about 60 miles from where you were. So bites do occur. I'm not sure why your daughter had so many bites. What was she doing at the time? Nothing. She said she was sitting pretty still because she didn't want to frighten it away. Sitting pretty still, Gutierrez said, frowning. He shook his head. Well, I don't think we can say exactly what happened. Wild animals are unpredictable. And what about the foamy saliva on her arm, Alan said. I keep thinking about rabies. No, no, Dr. Kicheris said. A reptile can't carry rabies, Mrs. Bowman. Your daughter has suffered an allergic reaction to the bite of a basilisk lizard. Nothing more serious.
Mike Bowman then showed Gutierrez the picture that Tina had drawn. Gutierrez nodded. I would accept this as a picture of a basilisk lizard, he said. A few details are wrong, of course. The neck is much too long, and she's drawn the hind legs with only three toes instead of five. The tail is too thick and raised too high, but otherwise this is a perfectly serviceable lizard of the kind we are talking about. But Tina specifically said the neck was long, Ellen Bowman insisted, and she said there were three toes on the foot. Tina's pretty observant. Mike Bowman said. I'm sure she is, Gutierrez said, smiling, but I still think your daughter was bitten by a common basilisk amaratus and had a severe herpetological reaction. Normal time course with medication is 12 hours. She should be just fine in the morning. In the modern laboratory in the basement of the Clinica Santa Maria, word was received that Dr. Gutierrez had identified the animal that had bitten the American child as a harmless basilisk lizard Immediately, the analysis of the saliva was halted, even though a preliminary fractionation showed several extremely high molecular weight proteins of unknown biological activity. But the night technician was busy, and he placed the saliva samples on the holding shelf of the refrigerator. The next morning, the day clerk checked the holding shelf against the names of discharged patients. Seeing that Bowman Christina L. was scheduled for discharge that morning, the clerk threw out the saliva samples. At the last moment, he noticed that one sample had the red tag, which meant that it was to be forwarded to the university lab in San Jose. He retrieved the test tube from the wastebasket and sent it on its way. Go on, say thank you to Dr. Cruz, Ellen Bowman said and pushed Tina forward. Thank you, Dr. Cruz, Tina said. I feel much better now. She reached up and shook the doctor's hand. Then she said, you have a different shirt. For a moment, Dr. Cruz looked perplexed. Then he smiled. That's right, Tina. When I work all night at the hospital, in the morning, I change my shirt. But not your tie? No, just my shirt. Ellen Bowman said, Mike told you she's observant. She certainly is. Dr. Cruz smiled and shook the little girl's hand gravely. Enjoy the rest of your holiday in Costa Rica, Tina. I will. The Bowman family had started to leave when Dr. Cruz said, Oh, Tina, do you remember the lizard that bit you? Uh-huh. You remember its feet? Uh-huh. Did it have any toes? Yes. How many toes did it have? Three, she said. How do you know that? Because I looked, she said. Anyway, all the birds on the beach made marks in the sand with three toes like this. She held up her hand, middle three fingers spread wide, and the lizard made those kind of marks in the sand, too. The lizard made marks like a bird? Uh-huh, Tina said. He walked like a bird, too. He jerked his head like this, up and down. She took a few steps, bobbing her head. After the Bowmans had departed, Dr. Cruz decided to report this conversation to Gutierrez at the biological station, I must admit the girl's story is puzzling, Gutierrez said. I've been doing some checking myself. I am no longer certain she was bitten by a basilisk. Not certain at all. Then what could it be? Well, Gutierrez said, let's not speculate prematurely. By the way, have you heard of any other lizard bites at the hospital? No. Why? Let me know, my friend, if you do.
The Beach Marty Gutierrez sat on the beach and watched the afternoon sun fall lower in the sky until it sparkled harshly on the water of the bay and its rays reached beneath the palm trees to where he sat among the mangroves on the beach of Cabo Blanco. As best he could determine, he was sitting near the spot where the American girl had been two days before. Although it was true enough, as he had told the Bowmans, that lizard bites were common, Gutierrez had never heard of a basilisk lizard biting anyone, and he had certainly never heard of anyone being hospitalized for a lizard bite. Then, too, the bite radius on Tina's arm appeared slightly too large for a basilisk. When he got back to the Carrara station, he had checked the small research library there, but found no reference to basilisk lizard bites. Next, he checked International Biosciences Services, a computer database in America, but he found no references to basilisk bites or hospitalization for lizard bites. He then called the medical officer in Amaloya, who confirmed that a nine-day-old infant sleeping in its crib had been bitten on the foot by an animal the grandmother, the only person actually to see it, claimed was a lizard. Subsequently, the foot had become swollen and the infant had nearly died. The grandmother described the lizard as green with brown stripes. It had bitten the child several times before the woman frightened it away. Strange, Gutierrez had said. No, like all the others, the medical officer replied, adding that he had heard of other biting incidents. A child in Vasquez, the next village up the coast, had been bitten while sleeping, and another in Puerto Sortrero. All these incidents had occurred in the last two months. All had involved sleeping children and infants. Such a new and distinctive pattern led Gutierrez to suspect the presence of a previously unknown species of lizard. This was particularly likely to happen in Costa Rica. Only 75 miles wide at its narrowest point, the country was smaller than the state of Maine. Yet within its limited space, Costa Rica had a remarkable diversity of biological habitats. Sea coasts on both the Atlantic and the Pacific, four separate mountain ranges, including 12,000-foot peaks and active volcanoes, rain forests, cloud forests, temperate zones, swampy marshes, and arid deserts. Such ecological diversity sustained an astonishing diversity of plant and animal life. Costa Rica had three times as many species of birds as all of North America, more than a thousand species of orchids, more than 5,000 species of insects. New species were being discovered all the time at a pace that had increased in recent years for a sad reason. Costa Rica was becoming deforested, and as jungle species lost their habitats, they moved to other areas and sometimes changed behavior as well. So a new species was perfectly possible, but along with the excitement of a new species was the worrisome possibility of new diseases. Lizards carried viral diseases, including several that could be transmitted to man. The most serious was central saurian encephalitis, or CSE, which caused a form of sleeping sickness in human beings and horses. Gutierrez felt it was important to find this new lizard, if only to test it for disease. Sitting on the beach, he watched the sun drop lower and sighed. Perhaps Tina Bowman had seen a new animal, and perhaps not. Certainly Gutierrez had not. Earlier that morning he had taken the air pistol, loaded the clip with ligamine darts, and set out for the beach with high hopes. But the day was wasted. 
Soon he would have to begin the drive back up the hill from the beach. He did not want to drive that road in darkness. Gutierrez got to his feet and started back up the beach. Farther along, he saw the dark shape of a howler monkey ambling along the edge of the mangrove swamp. Gutierrez moved away, stepping out toward the water. If there was one howler, there would probably be others in the trees overhead, and howlers tended to urinate on intruders. But this particular howler monkey seemed to be alone, and walking slowly and pausing frequently to sit in its haunches, the monkey had something in its mouth. As Gutierrez came closer, he saw it was eating a lizard. The tail and the hind legs drooped from the monkey's jaws. Even from a distance, Gutierrez could see the brown stripes against the green. Gutierrez dropped to the ground and aimed the pistol. The howler monkey, accustomed to living in a protected reserve, stared curiously. He did not run away, even when the first dart whined harmlessly past him. When the second dart struck deep in the thigh, the howler shrieked in anger and surprise, dropping the remains of its meal as it fled into the jungle. Gutierrez got to his feet and walked forward. He wasn't worried about the monkey. The tranquilizer dose was too small to give it anything but a few minutes of dizziness. Already he was thinking of what to do with his new find. Gutierrez himself would write the preliminary report, but the remains would have to be sent back to the United States for final positive identification, of course. To whom should he send it? The acknowledged expert was Edward H. Simpson, emeritus professor of zoology at Columbia University in New York. An elegant older man with swept-back white hair, Simpson was the world's leading authority on lizard taxonomy. Probably, Marty thought, he would send his lizard to Dr. Simpson. New York Dr. Richard Stone, head of the Tropical Diseases Laboratory of Columbia University Medical Center, often remarked that the name conjured up a grander place than it actually was. In the early 20th century, when the laboratory occupied the entire fourth floor of the biomedical research building, crews of technicians worked to eliminate the scourges of yellow fever, malaria, and cholera. But medical successes, the research laboratories in Nairobi and Sao Paulo, had left the TDL a much less important place than it once was. Now a fraction of its former size, it employed only two full-time technicians, and they were primarily concerned with diagnosing illnesses of New Yorkers who had traveled abroad. The lab's comfortable routine was unprepared for what it received that morning. Oh, very nice, the technician in the Tropical Diseases Laboratory said as she read the customs label. Partially masticated fragment of unidentified Costa Rican lizard. She wrinkled her nose. This one's all yours, Dr. Stone. Richard Stone crossed the lab to inspect the new arrival. Is this the material from Ed Simpson's lab? Yes, she said, but I don't know why they'd send a lizard to us. His secretary called, Stone said. Simpson's on a field trip in Borneo for the summer, and because there's a question of communicable disease with this lizard, she asked our lab to take a look at it. Let's see what we've got. The white plastic cylinder was the size of a half-gallon milk container. It had locking metal latches and a screw top. It was labeled International Biological Specimen Container and plastered with stickers and warnings in four languages. The warnings were intended to keep the cylinder from being opened by suspicious customs officials. Apparently, the warnings had worked. 
As Richard Stone swung the big light over, he could see the seals were still intact. Stone turned on the air handlers and pulled on plastic gloves and a face mask. After all, the lab had recently identified specimens contaminated with Venezuelan equine fever, Japanese bee encephalitis, Kyasanur forest virus, Langat virus, and Mayaro. Then he unscrewed the top. There was the hiss of escaping gas, and white smoke boiled out. The cylinder turned frosty cold. Inside, he found a plastic Ziploc sandwich bag containing something green. Stone spread a surgical drape on the table and shook out the contents of the bag. A piece of frozen flesh struck the table with a dull thud. Huh, the technician said. Looks eaten. Yes, it does, Stone said. What do they want with us? The technician consulted the enclosed documents. Lizard is biting local children. They have a question about identification of the species and a concern about diseases transmitted from the bite. She produced a child's picture of a lizard signed Tina at the top. One of the kids drew a picture of the lizard. Stone glanced at the picture. Obviously, we can't verify the species, Stone said, but we can check diseases easily enough if we can get any blood out of this fragment. Uh, what are they calling this animal? Basiliscus amoratus, with three-toed genetic anomaly, she said, reading. Okay, Stone said, let's get started. While you're waiting for it to thaw, do an X-ray and take Polaroids for the record. Once we have blood, start running antibody sets until we get some matches. Let me know if there's a problem. Before lunchtime, the lab had its answer. The lizard blood showed no significant reactivity to any viral or bacterial antigen. They had run toxicity profiles as well, and they had found only one positive match. The blood was mildly reactive to the venom of the Indian king cobra. But such cross-reactivity was common among reptile species, and Dr. Stone did not think it noteworthy to include in the facts his technician sent to Dr. Martin Gutierrez that same evening. There was never any question about identifying the lizard. That would await the return of Dr. Simpson. He was not due back for several weeks, and his secretary asked if the TDL would please store the lizard fragment in the meantime. Dr. Stone put it back in the Ziploc bag and stuck it in the freezer. Martin Gutierrez read the facts from the Columbia Medical Center Stroke Tropical Diseases Laboratory. It was brief. Subject... Basiliscus amoratus with genetic anomaly, forwarded from Dr. Simpson's office. Materials, posterior segment, query, partially eaten animal. Procedures performed, X-ray, microscopic, immunological RTX for viral, parasitic, bacterial disease. Findings, no histologic or immunologic evidence for any communicable disease in man in this Basiliscus amoratus sample. Signed, Richard A. Stone, M.D., Director. Gutierrez made two assumptions based on the memo. First, that his identification of the lizard as a basilisk had been confirmed by scientists at Columbia University. And second, that the absence of communicable disease meant the recent episodes of sporadic lizard bites implied no serious health hazards for Costa Rica. On the contrary, he felt his original views were correct that a lizard species had been driven from the forest into a new habitat and was coming into contact with village people. Gutierrez was certain that in a few more weeks the lizards would settle down and the biting episodes would end.
The tropical rain fell in great drenching sheets, hammering the corrugated roof of the clinic at Bahia Anasco. It was nearly midnight. Power had been lost in the storm, and the midwife Elena Morales was working by flashlight when she heard a squeaking, chirping sound. Thinking that it was a rat, she quickly put a compress on the forehead of the mother and went into the next room to check on the newborn baby. As her hand touched the doorknob, she heard the chirping again, and she relaxed. Evidently, it was just a bird flying in the window to get out of the rain. Costa Rican said that when a bird came to visit a newborn child, it brought good luck. Elena opened the door. The infant lay on a wicker bassinet, swaddled in a light blanket, only its face exposed. Around the rim of the bassinet, three dark green lizards crouched like gargoyles. When they saw Elena, they cocked their heads and stared curiously at her, but did not flee. In the light of her flashlight, Elena saw the blood dripping from their snouts. Softly chirping, one lizard bent down and with a quick shake of its head, tore a ragged chunk of flesh from the baby. Elena rushed forward, screaming, and the lizards fled into the darkness. But long before she reached the bassinet, she could see what had happened to the infant's face, and she knew the child must be dead. The lizards scattered into the rainy night, chirping and squealing, leaving behind only bloody three-toed tracks, like birds. The Shape of the Data Later, when she was calmer, Elena Morales decided not to report the lizard attack. Despite the horror she had seen, she began to worry that she might be criticized for leaving the baby unguarded. So she told the mother that the baby had asphyxiated, and she reported the death on the form she sent to San Jose as SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. This was a syndrome of unexplained death among very young children. It was unremarkable, and her report went unchallenged. The university lab in San Jose that analyzed the saliva sample from Tina Bowman's arm made several remarkable discoveries. There was, as expected, a great deal of serotonin, but among the salivary proteins was a real monster, molecular mass of 1,980,000, one of the largest proteins known. Biological activity was still under study, but it seemed to be a neurotoxic poison related to cobra venom, although more primitive in structure. The lab also detected trace quantities of the gamma-aminomethionine hydrolase. Because this enzyme was a marker for genetic engineering and not found in wild animals, technicians assumed it was a lab contaminant and did not report it when they called Dr. Cruz, the referring physician in Punta Arenas. The lizard fragment rested in the freezer at Columbia University, awaiting the return of Dr. Simpson, who was not expected for at least a month. And so things might have remained had not a technician named Alice Levin walked into the Tropical Diseases Laboratory, seen Tina Bowman's picture, and said, Oh, whose kid drew the dinosaur? What? Richard Stone said, turning slowly toward her. The dinosaur. Isn't that what it is? My kid draws them all the time. This is a lizard, Stone said, from Costa Rica. Some girl down there drew a picture of it. No, Alice Levin said, shaking her head. Look at it. It's very clear. Big head, long neck, stands on its hind legs, thick tail. It's a dinosaur. It can't be. It was only a foot tall. So? There were little dinosaurs back then, Alice said. Believe me, I know. 
I have two boys. I'm an expert. The smallest dinosaurs were under a foot. Teenysaurus or something, I don't know. Those names are impossible. You'll never learn those names if you're over the age of ten. You don't understand, Richard Stone said. This is a picture of a contemporary animal. They sent us a fragment of the animal. It's in the freezer now. Stone went and got it and shook it out of the baggie. Alice Levin looked at the frozen piece of leg and tail and shrugged. She didn't touch it. I don't know, she said, but that looks like a dinosaur to me. Stone shook his head. Impossible. Why, Alice Levin said. It could be a leftover or a remnant or whatever they call them. Stone continued to shake his head. Alice was uninformed. She was just a technician who worked in the bacteriology lab down the hall, and she had an active imagination. Stone remembered the time when she thought she was being followed by one of the surgical orderlies. You know, Alice Levin said, if this is a dinosaur, Richard, it could be a big deal. It's not a dinosaur. Has anybody checked it? No, Stone said. Well, take it to the Museum of Natural History or something, Alice Levin said. You really should. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed. You want me to do it for you, she said. No, Richard Stone said. I don't. You're not going to do anything? Nothing at all. He put the baggie back in the freezer and slammed the door. It's not a dinosaur, it's a lizard. And whatever it is, it can wait until Dr. Simpson gets back from Borneo to identify it. That's final, Alice. This lizard's not going anywhere. Second Iteration With subsequent drawings of the fractal curve, sudden changes may appear. Ian Malcolm The Shore of the Inland Sea Alan Grant crouched down, his nose inches from the ground. The temperature was over a hundred degrees. His knees ached, despite the rug layer's pads he wore. His lungs burned from the harsh alkaline dust. Sweat dripped off his forehead onto the ground. But Grant was oblivious to the discomfort. His entire attention was focused on the six-inch square of earth in front of him. Working patiently with a dental pick and an artist's camel brush, he exposed the tiny L-shaped fragment of jawbone. It was only an inch long and no thicker than his little finger. The teeth were a row of small points and had the characteristic medial angling. Bits of bone flaked away as he dug. Grant paused for a moment to paint the bone with rubber cement before continuing to expose it. There was no question that this was the jawbone from an infant carnivorous dinosaur. Its owner had died 79 million years ago at the age of about two months. With any luck, Grant might find the rest of the skeleton as well. If so, it would be the first complete skeleton of a baby carnivore. Hey, Alan! Alan Grant looked up, blinking in the sunlight. He pulled down his sunglasses and wiped his forehead with the back of his arm. He was crouched on an eroded hillside in the badlands outside Snakewater, Montana. Beneath the great blue bowl of sky... Blunted hills, exposed outcroppings of crumbling limestone, stretched for miles in every direction. There was not a tree or a bush, nothing but barren rock, hot sun, and whining wind. Visitors found the Badlands depressingly bleak, but when Grant looked at this landscape, he saw something else entirely. This barren land was what remained of another very different world, which had vanished 80 million years ago. 
In his mind's eye, Grant saw himself back in the warm, swampy bayou that formed the shoreline of a great inland sea. This inland sea was a thousand miles wide, extending all the way from the newly upthrust Rocky Mountains to the sharp, craggy peaks of the Appalachians. All of the American West was underwater. At that time, there were thin clouds in the sky overhead, darkened by the smoke of nearby volcanoes. The atmosphere was denser, richer in carbon dioxide. Plants grew rapidly along the shoreline. There were no fish in these waters, but there were clams and snails. Pterosaurs swooped down to scoop algae from the surface. A few carnivorous dinosaurs prowled the swampy shores of the lake, moving among the palm trees. And offshore was a small island, about two acres in size. Ringed with dense vegetation, this island formed a protected sanctuary where herds of herbivorous duck-billed dinosaurs laid their eggs in communal nests and raised their squeaking young. Over the millions of years that followed, the pale green alkaline lake grew shallower and finally vanished. The exposed land buckled and cracked under the heat, and the offshore island with its dinosaur eggs became the eroded hillside in northern Montana, which Alan Grant was now excavating. Hey, Alan! He stood, a barrel-chested, bearded man of forty. He heard the chugging of the portable generator and the distant clatter of the jackhammer cutting into the dense rock on the next hill. He saw the kids working around the jackhammer, moving away the big pieces of rock after checking them for fossils. At the foot of the hill, he saw the six teepees of his camp, the flapping mess tent and the trailer that served as their field laboratory. And he saw Ellie waving to him from the shadow of the field laboratory. Visitor! she called and pointed to the east. Grant saw the cloud of dust and the blue Ford sedan bouncing over the rutted road toward them. He glanced at his watch, right on time. On the other hill, the kids looked up with interest. They didn't get many visitors in Snakewater, and there had been a lot of speculation about what a lawyer from the Environmental Protection Agency would want to see Alan Grant about. But Grant knew that paleontology, the study of extinct life, had in recent years taken on an unexpected relevance to the modern world. The modern world was changing fast, and urgent questions about the weather, deforestation, global warming, or the ozone layer often seemed answerable, at least in part, with information from the past, information that paleontologists could provide. He had been called as an expert witness twice in the past few years, Grant started down the hill to meet the car. The visitor coughed in the white dust as he slammed the car door. Bob Morris, EPA, he said, extending his hand. I'm with the San Francisco office. Grant introduced himself and said, You look hot. Want a beer? Jesus, yeah. Morris was in his late 20s wearing a tie and pants from a business suit. He carried a briefcase. His wingtip shoes crunched on the rocks as they walked toward the trailer. When I first came over the hill, I thought this was an Indian reservation, Morris said, pointing to the teepees. No, Grant said, just the best way to live out here. Grant explained that in 1978, the first year of the excavations, they had come out in North Slope octahedral tents, the most advanced available, but the tents always blew over in the wind. They tried other kinds of tents with the same result. Finally, they started putting up teepees, which were larger inside, more comfortable, and more stable in wind. These are Blackfoot teepees built around four poles, Grant said. Sioux teepees are built around three, but 
This used to be Blackfoot territory, so we thought... Uh-huh, Morris said, very fitting. He squinted at the desolate landscape and shook his head. How long you been out here? About sixty cases, Grant said. When Morris looked surprised, he explained, We measure time in beer. We start in June with a hundred cases. We've gone through about sixty so far. Sixty-three, to be exact, Ellie Sattler said as they reached the trailer. Grant was amused to see Morris gaping at her. Ellie was wearing cut-off jeans and a work shirt tied at her midriff. She was twenty-four and darkly tanned. Her blonde hair was pulled back. Ellie keeps us going, Grant said, introducing her. She's very good at what she does. And what does she do? Morris asked. Paleobotany, Ellie said, and I also do the standard field preps. She opened the door and they went inside. The air conditioning in the trailer only brought the temperature down to 85 degrees, but it seemed cool after the midday heat. The trailer had a series of long wooden tables with tiny bone specimens neatly laid out, tagged and labeled. Farther along were ceramic dishes and crocks. There was a strong odor of vinegar. Morris glanced at the bones. I thought dinosaurs were big, he said. They were, Ellie said. But everything you see here comes from babies. Snake water is important primarily because of the number of dinosaur nesting sites here. Until we started this work, there were hardly any infant dinosaurs known. Only one nest had ever been found in the Gobi Desert. We've discovered a dozen different hadrosaur nests, complete with eggs and bones of infants. While Grant went to the refrigerator, she showed Morris the acetic acid baths, which were used to dissolve away the limestone from the delicate bones. They look like chicken bones, Morris said, peering into the ceramic dishes. Yes, she said, they're very bird-like. And what about those, Morris said, pointing through the trailer window to piles of large bones outside, wrapped in heavy plastic. Rejects, Ellie said, bones too fragmentary when we took them out of the ground. In the old days, we just discard them, but nowadays we send them for genetic testing. Genetic testing, Morris said. Here you go, Grant said, thrusting a beer into his hand. He gave another to Ellie. She chugged hers, throwing her long neck back. Morris stared. We're pretty informal here, Grant said. Want to step into my office? Sure, Morris said. Grant led him to the end of the trailer, where there was a torn couch, a sagging chair, and a battered end table. Grant dropped onto the couch, which creaked and exhaled a cloud of chalky dust. He leaned back, thumped his boots up on the end table, and gestured for Morris to sit in the chair. Make yourself comfortable. Grant was a professor of paleontology at the University of Denver, and one of the foremost researchers in his field, but he had never been comfortable with social niceties. He saw himself as an outdoor man, and he knew that all the important work in paleontology was done outdoors with your hands. Grant had little patience for the academics, for the museum curators, for what he called teacup dinosaur hunters, and he took some pains to distance himself in dress and behavior from the teacup dinosaur hunters, even delivering his lectures in jeans and sneakers. Grant watched as Morris primly brushed off the seat of the chair before he sat down. Morris opened his briefcase, rummaged through his papers, and glanced back at Ellie, who was lifting bones with tweezers from the acid bath at the other end of the trailer, paying no attention to them. You're probably wondering why I'm here. Grant nodded. It's a long way to come, Mr. Morris. 
Well, Morris said, to get right to the point, the EPA is concerned about the activities of the Hammond Foundation. You receive some funding from them. $30,000 a year, Grant said, nodding. For the last five years. What do you know about the Foundation, Morris said. Grant shrugged. The Hammond Foundation is a respected source of academic grants. They fund research all over the world, including several dinosaur researchers. I know they support Bob Carey out of the Tyrrell in Alberta and John Weller in Alaska, probably more. Do you know why the Hammond Foundation supports so much dinosaur research? Morris asked. Of course, it's because old John Hammond is a dinosaur nut. You've met Hammond? Grant shrugged. Well, once or twice. He comes here for brief visits. He's quite elderly, you know, and eccentric, the way rich people sometimes are, but always very enthusiastic. Why? Well, Morris said, the Hammond Foundation is actually a rather mysterious organization. He pulled out a Xeroxed world map marked with red dots and passed it to Grant. These are the digs the Foundation financed last year. Notice anything odd about them? Montana, Alaska, Canada, Sweden. They're all sites in the north. There's nothing below the 45th parallel. Morris pulled out more maps. It's the same year after year. Dinosaur projects to the south in Utah or Colorado or Mexico never get funded. The Hammond Foundation only supports cold-weather digs. We'd like to know why. Grant shuffled through the maps quickly. If it was true that the Foundation only supported cold-weather digs, then it was strange behavior because some of the best dinosaur researchers were working in hot climates and... And there are other puzzles, Morris said. For example, what is the relationship of dinosaurs to amber? Amber? Yes, it's the hard yellow resin of dried tree sap. I know what it is, Grant said, but why are you asking? Because, Morris said, over the last five years, Hammond has purchased enormous quantities of amber in America, Europe, and Asia, including many pieces of museum-quality jewelry. The Foundation has spent $17 million on amber. They now possess the largest privately held stock of this material in the world. I don't get it, Grant said. Neither does anybody else, Morris said. As far as we can tell, it doesn't make any sense at all. Amber is easily synthesized. It has no commercial or defense value. There's no reason to stockpile it. But Hammond has done just that over many years. Amber, Grant said, shaking his head. And what about his island in Costa Rica, Morris continued. Ten years ago, the Hammond Foundation leased an island from the government of Costa Rica, supposedly to set up a biological preserve. I don't know anything about that, Grant said, frowning. I haven't been able to find out much, Morris said. The island is a hundred miles off the west coast. It's very rugged, and it's in an area of ocean where the combinations of wind and current make it almost perpetually covered in fog. They used to call it Cloud Island, Isla Nublar. Apparently, the Costa Ricans were amazed that anybody would want it. Morris searched in his briefcase. The reason I mention it, he said, is that, according to the records, you were paid a consultant's fee in connection with this island. I was, Grant said. Morris passed a sheet of paper to Grant. It was the Xerox of a check issued in March 1984 from InGen, Incorporated, Farallon Road, Palo Alto, California, made out to Alan Grant in the amount of 12 thousand dollars. At the lower corner, the check was marked Consultant Services Stroke Costa Rica Stroke 
juvenile hyperspace. Oh, sure, Grant said. I remember that. It was weird as hell, but I remember it. And it didn't have anything to do with an island. Alan Grant had found the first clutch of dinosaur eggs in Montana in 1979, and many more in the next two years. But he hadn't gotten around to publishing his findings until 1983. His paper, with its report of a herd of 10,000 duck-billed dinosaurs living along the shore of a vast inland sea, building communal nests of eggs in the mud, raising their infant dinosaurs in the herd, made Grant a celebrity overnight. The notion of maternal instincts and giant dinosaurs, and the drawings of cute babies poking their snouts out of the eggs, had appeal around the world. Grant was besieged with requests for interviews, lectures, books. Characteristically, he turned them all down, wanting only to continue his excavations. But it was during those frantic days of the mid-1980s that he was approached by the InGen Corporation with a request for consulting services. Had you heard of InGen before? Morris asked. No. How did they contact you? Telephone call. There was a man named uh, Gennaro or Janino, something like that. Morris nodded. Donald Gennaro, he said. He's the legal counsel for InGen. Anyway, he wanted to know about eating habits of dinosaurs, and he offered me a fee to draw up a paper for him. Grant drank his beer, set the can on the floor. Gennaro was particularly interested in young dinosaurs, infants and juveniles, what they ate. I guess he thought I would know about that. Did you? Not really, no. I told him that. We had found lots of skeletal material, but we had very little dietary data. But Gennaro said he knew we hadn't published everything, and he wanted whatever we had. And he offered a very large fee, $50,000. Morris took out a tape recorder and set it on the end table. You mind? No, go ahead. So, Gennaro telephoned you in 1984. What happened then? Well, Grant said, you see our operation here. 50,000 would support two full summers of digging. I told him I'd do what I could. So you agreed to prepare a paper for him? Yes. On the dietary habits of juvenile dinosaurs? Yes. You met Gennaro? No, just on the phone. Did Gennaro say why he wanted this information? Yes, Grant said. He was planning a museum for children, and he wanted to feature baby dinosaurs. He said he was hiring a number of academic consultants and named them. There were paleontologists like me, and a mathematician from Texas named Ian Malcolm, and a couple of ecologists. A systems analyst. Good group. Morris nodded, making notes. So you accepted the consultancy? Yes. I agreed to send him a summary of our work, what we knew about the habits of the duck-billed hadrosaurs we'd found. What kind of information did you send? Morris asked. Everything. Nesting behavior, territorial ranges, feeding behavior, social behavior, everything. And how did Gennaro respond? He kept calling and calling, sometimes in the middle of the night. Would the dinosaurs eat this? Would they eat that? Should the exhibit include this? I could never understand why he was so worked up. I mean, I think dinosaurs are important too, but not that important. They've been dead 65 million years. You'd think his calls could wait until morning. I see, Morris said. And the $50,000? Grant shook his head. I got tired of Gennaro and called the whole thing off. We settled up for 12000 That must have been about the middle of 85. Morris made a note. 
And InGen, any other contact with them? Not since 1985. And when did the Hammond Foundation begin to fund your research? I'd have to look, Grant said, but it was around then, mid-80s. And you know Hammond as just a rich dinosaur enthusiast? Yes. Morris made another note. Look, Grant said, if the EPA is so concerned about John Hammond and what he's doing, the dinosaur sites in the north, the amber purchases, the island in Costa Rica, why don't you just ask him about it? At the moment, we can't, Morris said. Why not, Grant said. Because we don't have any evidence of wrongdoing, Morris said. But personally, I think it's clear John Hammond is evading the law. I was first contacted, Morris explained, by the Office of Technology Transfer. The OTT monitors shipments of American technology which might have military significance. They called to say that InGen had two areas of possible illegal technology transfer. First, InGen shipped three Cray XMPs to Costa Rica. InGen characterized it as transfer within corporate divisions and said they weren't for resale, but OTT couldn't imagine why the hell somebody'd need that power in Costa Rica? Three Crays, Grant said. Is that a kind of computer? Morris nodded. Very powerful supercomputers. To put it in perspective, three Crays represent more computing power than any other privately held company in America. And InGen sent the machines to Costa Rica. You have to wonder why. I give up. Why, Grant said. Nobody knows. And the hoods are even more worrisome, Morris continued. Hoods are automated gene sequencers, machines that work out the genetic code by themselves. They're so new that they haven't been put on the restricted list yet. But any genetic engineering lab is likely to have one if it can afford the half-million-dollar price tag. He flipped through his notes. Well, it seems InGen shipped 24 hood sequencers to their island in Costa Rica. Again, they said it was a transfer within divisions and not an export, Morris said. There wasn't much that OTT could do. They're not officially concerned with use, but InGen was obviously setting up one of the most powerful genetic engineering facilities in the world in an obscure Central American country, a country with no regulations. That kind of thing has happened before. There had already been cases of American bioengineering companies moving to another country so they would not be hampered by regulations and rules. The most flagrant, Morris explained, was the Biosyn rabies case. In 1986, Genetic Biosyn Corporation of Cupertino tested a bioengineered rabies vaccine on a farm in Chile. They didn't inform the government of Chile or the farm workers involved. They simply released the vaccine. The vaccine consisted of live rabies virus, genetically modified to be non-virulent. But the virulence hadn't been tested. Biosyn didn't know whether the virus could still cause rabies or not. Even worse, the virus had been modified. Ordinarily, you couldn't contract rabies unless you were bitten by an animal, but Biosyn modified the rabies virus to cross the pulmonary alveoli. You could get an infection just inhaling it. Biosyn staffers brought this live rabies virus down to Chile in a carry-on bag on a commercial airline flight. Morris often wondered what would have happened if the capsule had broken open during the flight. Everybody on the plane might have been infected with rabies. It was outrageous. It was irresponsible. It was criminally negligent. But no action was taken against Biosyn. 
The Chilean farmers who unwittingly risked their lives were ignorant peasants. The government of Chile had an economic crisis to worry about, and the American authorities had no jurisdiction. So Lewis Dodgson, the geneticist responsible for the test, was still working at Biosyn. Biosyn was still as reckless as ever. And other American companies were hurrying to set up facilities in foreign countries that lacked sophistication about genetic research. Countries that perceived genetic engineering to be like any other high-tech development, and thus welcomed it to their lands, unaware of the dangers posed. So that's why we began our investigation of InGen, Morris said, about three weeks ago. And what have you actually found, Grant said. Not much, Morris admitted. When I go back to San Francisco, we'll probably have to close the investigation. And I think I'm about finished here. He started packing up his briefcase. By the way, what does juvenile hyperspace mean? That's just a fancy label for my report, Grant said. Hyperspace is a term for multidimensional space, like three-dimensional tic-tac-toe. If you were to take all the behaviors of an animal, its eating and movement and sleeping, you could plot the animal within the multidimensional space. Some paleontologists refer to the behavior of an animal as occurring in an ecological hyperspace. Juvenile hyperspace would just refer to the behavior of juvenile dinosaurs, if you wanted to be as pretentious as possible. At the far end of the trailer, the phone rang. Ellie answered it. She said, He's in a meeting right now. Can he call you back? Morris snapped his briefcase shut and stood. Thanks for your help and the beer, he said. No problem, Grant said. Grant walked with Morris down the trailer to the door at the far end. Morris said, Did Hammond ever ask for any physical materials from your site, bones or eggs or anything like that? No, Grant said. Dr. Sattler mentioned you do some genetic work here. Well, not exactly, Grant said. When we remove fossils that are broken, or for some other reason not suitable for museum preservation, we send the bones out to a lab that grinds them up and tries to extract proteins for us. The proteins are then identified, and the report is sent back to us. Which lab is that? Morris asked. Medical Biologic Services in Salt Lake. How'd you choose them? Competitive bids. The lab has nothing to do with InGen? Morris asked. Not that I know. Grant said. They came to the door of the trailer. Grant opened it and felt the rush of hot air from outside. Morris paused to put on his sunglasses. One last thing, Morris said. Suppose InGen wasn't really making a museum exhibit. Is there anything else they could have done with the information in the report you gave them? Grant laughed. Sure, they could feed a baby hadrosaur. Morris laughed too. <laughs> baby hadrosaur! That'd be something to see. How big were they? Mm, about so, Grant said, holding his hands six inches apart. Squirrel size. And how long before they become full grown? Three years, Grant said, give or take. Morris held out his hand. Well, thanks again for your help. Take it easy driving back, Grant said. He watched for a moment as Morris walked back toward his car and then closed the trailer door. Grant said, what did you think? Ellie shrugged. Naive. You like the part where John Hammond is the evil arch-villain? Grant laughed. John Hammond's about as sinister as Walt Disney. By the way, who called? 
Oh, Ellie said, it was a woman named Alice Levin. She works at Columbia Medical Center. You know her? Grant shook his head. No. Well, it was something about identifying some remains. She wants you to call her back right away. Skeleton. Ellie Sattler brushed a strand of blonde hair back from her face and turned her attention to the acid baths. She had six in a row at molar strengths from five to thirty percent. She had to keep an eye on the stronger solutions because they would eat through the limestone and begin to erode the bones. And infant dinosaur bones were so fragile. She marveled that they had been preserved at all after eighty million years. She listened idly as Grant said, Miss Levin, this is Alan Grant. And what's this about a... You have what? A what? He began to laugh. Oh, I doubt that very much, Miss Levin. No, I really don't have time, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I'll take a look at it, but I can pretty much guarantee it's a basilisk lizard, but... Yes, you can do that. All right, send it now. Grant hung up and shook his head. <laughs> These people. Ellie said, what's it about? Some lizard she's trying to identify, Grant said. She's going to fax me an x-ray. He walked over to the fax and waited as the transmission came through. Incidentally, I've got a new find for you, a good one. Yes? Grant nodded. Found it just before the kid showed up. On South Hill, Horizon 4, infant velociraptor, jaw and complete dentition. So there's no question about identity, and the site looks undisturbed. We might even get a full skeleton. That's fantastic, Ellie said. How young? Young, Grant said. Two, maybe four months at most. And it's definitely a velociraptor? Definitely, Grant said. Maybe our luck has finally turned. For the last two years at Snakewater, the team had excavated only duck-billed hadrosaurs. They already had evidence for vast herds of these grazing dinosaurs roaming the Cretaceous plains in groups of ten or twenty thousand, as buffalo would later roam, but increasingly the question that faced them was, where were the predators? They expected predators to be rare, of course. Studies of predator-stroke-prey populations in the game parks of Africa and India suggested that, roughly speaking, there was one predatory carnivore for every four hundred herbivores. That meant a herd of ten thousand duckbills would support only twenty-five tyrannosaurs. So it was unlikely that they would find the remains of a large predator. But where were the smaller predators? Snakewater had dozens of nesting sites. In some places, the ground was literally covered with fragments of dinosaur eggshells, and many small dinosaurs ate eggs. Animals like Dromaeosaurus, Oviraptor, Velociraptor, and Silurus, predators three to six feet tall, must have been found here in abundance. But they had discovered none so far. Perhaps this Velociraptor skeleton did mean their luck had changed, and an infant... Ellie knew that one of Grant's dreams was to study infant-rearing behavior in carnivorous dinosaurs, as he had already studied the behavior of herbivores. Perhaps this was the first step toward that dream. You must be pretty excited, Ellie said. Grant didn't answer. I said you must be excited, Ellie repeated. My God, Grant said. He was staring at the facts. Ellie looked over Grant's shoulder at the x-ray and breathed out slowly. You think it's an amasicus? Yes, Grant said, or a triassicus, a skeleton is so light. 
But it's no lizard, she said. No, Grant said, this is not a lizard. No three-toed lizard has walked on this planet for two hundred million years. Ellie's first thought was that she was looking at a hoax, an ingenious, skillful hoax, but a hoax nonetheless. Every biologist knew that the threat of a hoax was omnipresent. The most famous hoax, the Piltdown Man, had gone undetected for forty years, and its perpetrator was still unknown. More recently, the distinguished astronomer Fred Hoyle had claimed that a fossil-winged dinosaur, Archaeopteryx, on display in the British Museum was a fraud. It was later shown to be genuine. The essence of a successful hoax was that it presented scientists with what they expected to see. And to Ellie's eye, the X-ray image of the lizard was exactly correct. The three-toed foot was well-balanced, with a medial claw smallest, the bony remnants of the fourth and fifth toes were located up near the metatarsal joint. The tibia was strong and considerably longer than the femur. At the hip, the acetabulum was complete. The tail showed forty-five vertebrae. It was a young Procompsognathus. Could this X-ray be faked? I don't know, Grant said, but it's almost impossible to fake an X-ray. And Procompsognathus is an obscure animal. Even people familiar with dinosaurs have never heard of it. Ellie read the note. Specimen acquired on the beach of Cabo Blanco, July 16th. Apparently a howler monkey was eating the animal, and this was all that was recovered. Oh, and it says the lizard attacked a little girl. I doubt that, Grant said. But perhaps Procompsognathus was so small and light we assume it must be a scavenger, only feeding off dead creatures. And you can tell the size, he measured quickly, it's about... Twenty centimeters to the hips, which means the full animal would be about a foot tall, about as big as a chicken. Even a child would look pretty fearsome to it. It might bite an infant, but not a child. Ellie frowned at the X-ray image. You think this could really be a legitimate rediscovery, she said? Like the coelacanth? Maybe, Grant said. Twenty centimeters to the hips, which means the full animal would be about a foot tall about as big as a chicken. Even a child would look pretty fearsome to it. It might bite an infant, but not a child. Ellie frowned at the X-ray image. You think this could really be a legitimate rediscovery, she said? Like the coelacanth? Maybe, Grant said. The coelacanth was a five-foot-long fish, thought to have died out 65 million years ago, until a specimen was pulled from the ocean in 1938. But there were other examples. The Australian mountain pygmy possum was known only from fossils until a live one was found in a garbage can in Melbourne. And a 10,000-year-old fossil fruit bat from New Guinea was described by a zoologist who not long afterward received a living specimen in the mail. But could it be real? she persisted. What about the age? Grant nodded. The age is a problem. Most rediscovered animals were rather recent additions to the fossil record, ten or twenty thousand years old. Some were a few million years old. In the case of the coelacanth, sixty-five million years old. But the specimen they were looking at was much, much older than that. Dinosaurs had died out in the Cretaceous period sixty-five million years ago. They had flourished as the dominant life form on the planet in the Jurassic, 190 million years ago, and they had first appeared in the Triassic, roughly 220 million years ago. It was during the early Triassic period that Procompsognathus had lived, a time so distant 
that our planet didn't even look the same. All the continents were joined together in a single landmass called Pangaea, which extended from the north to the south pole, a vast continent of ferns and forests with a few large deserts. The Atlantic Ocean was a narrow lake between what would become Africa and Florida. The air was denser, the land was warmer, there were hundreds of active volcanoes, and it was in this environment that Procompsognathus lived. Well, Ellie said, we know animals have survived. Crocodiles are basically Triassic animals living in the present. Sharks are Triassic, so we know it has happened before. Grant nodded. And the thing is, he said, how else do we explain it? It's either a fake, which I doubt, or else it's a rediscovery. What else could it be? The phone rang. Alice Levin again, Grant said. Let's see if she'll send us the actual specimen. He answered it and looked at Ali, surprised. Yes, I'll hold for Mr. Hammond. Yes, of course. Hammond, what does he want? Ali said. Grant shook his head and then said into the phone, Yes, Mr. Hammond, yes, it's good to hear your voice, too. Yes, he looked at Ellie. Oh, you did? Oh, yes? Is that right? He cupped his hand over the mouthpiece and said, Still eccentric as ever, you've got to hear this. Grant pushed the speaker button and Ellie heard a raspy old man's voice speaking rapidly. Hell of an annoyance from some EPA fellow. Seems to have gone off half-cocked, all on his own, running around the country talking to people, stirring up things. I don't suppose anybody's come to see you way out there. As a matter of fact, Grant said, somebody did come to see me. Hammond snorted. <laughs> I was afraid of that smart-ass kid named Morris. Yes, his name was Morris, Grant said. He's going to see all our consultants, Hammond said. He went to see Ian Malcolm the other day. You know, the mathematician in Texas. That's the first I knew of it. We're having one hell of a time getting a handle on this thing. It's typical of the way government operates. There isn't any complaint. There isn't any charge. Just harassment from some kid who's unsupervised and is running around at the taxpayer's expense. Did he bother you? Disrupt your work? No, no, he, he didn't bother me. Well, that's too bad in a way, Hammond said because I'd try and get an injunction to stop him if he had. As it is, I had our lawyers call over at EPA to find out what the hell their problem is. The head of the office claims he didn't know there was any investigation. You figure that one out. Damn bureaucracy is all it is. Hell, I think this kid's trying to get down to Costa Rica, poke around, get onto our island. You know we have an island down there? No, Grant said, looking at Ellie. I didn't know. Oh, yes, we bought it and started our operation, oh, four or five years ago now. I forget exactly. Called Isla Nublar. Big island, 100 miles offshore. Going to be a biological preserve. Wonderful place, tropical jungle. You know, you ought to see it, Dr. Grant. Sounds interesting, Grant said. But actually, it's almost finished now, you know, Hammond said. I've sent you some material about it. Did you get my material? No, but we're pretty far from... Maybe it'll come today. Look it over. The island's just beautiful. It's got everything. We've been in construction now 30 months. You can imagine. Big park. Opens in September next year. You really ought to go see it. It sounds wonderful, but as a matter of fact, Hammond said, I'm going to insist you see it, Dr. Grant. I know you'd find it right up your alley. You'd find it fascinating. I'm in the middle of, Grant said. Say, I'll tell you what, 
Hammond said, as if the idea had just occurred to him. I'm having some of the people who consulted for us go down there this weekend, spend a few days and look it over, at our expense, of course. It'd be terrific if you'd give us your opinion. I couldn't possibly, Grant said. Oh, just for a weekend, Hammond said, with the irritating, cheery persistence of an old man. That's all I'm talking about, Dr. Grant. I wouldn't want to interrupt your work. I know how important that work is. Believe me, I know that. Never interrupt your work. But you could hop on down there this weekend and be back on Monday. No, I couldn't, Grant said. I've just found a new skeleton and... Yes, fine, but I still think you should come, Hammond said, not really listening. And we've just received some evidence for a very puzzling and remarkable find, which seems to be a living procomsognathid. A uh, what? Hammond said, slowing down. I didn't quite get that. You said a living procomsognathid? That's right, Grant said. It's a biological specimen, a partial fragment of an animal collected from Central America, a living animal. You don't say, Hammond said. A living animal? How extraordinary. Yes, Grant said. We think so, too. So, you see, this isn't the time for me to be leaving Central America, did you say? Yes. Where in Central America is it from, do you know? A beach called Cabo Blanco. I don't know exactly where. I see. Hammond cleared his throat. And when did this uh, specimen arrive in your hands? Just today. Today, I see. Today, I see. Yes. Hammond cleared his throat again. Grant looked at Ellie and mouthed, What's going on? Ellie shook her head. Sounds upset. Grant mouthed, See if Morris is still here. She went to the window and looked out, but Morris's car was gone. She turned back. On the speaker, Hammond coughed. Uh, <coughs> Dr. Grant, have you told anybody about it yet? No. Good. That's good. Well, uh, yes. I'll tell you frankly, Dr. Grant, I'm having a little problem about this island. This EPA thing is coming at just the wrong time. How's that, Grant said. Well, we've had our problems and some delays. Let's just say that I'm under a little pressure here, and I'd like you to look at this island for me. Give me your opinion. I'll be paying you the usual weekend consultant rate of 20000 a day. That'll be 60000 for three days. And if you can spare Dr. Sattler, she'll go at the same rate. We need a botanist. What do you say? Ellie looked at Grant as he said, well, Mr. Hammond, that much money would fully finance our expeditions for the next two summers. Good, good, Hammond said blandly. He seemed distracted now, his thoughts elsewhere. I want this to be easy. Now I'm sending the corporate jet to pick you up at that private airfield east of Choto. You know the one I mean? It's only about two hours' drive from where you are. You be there at 5 p.m. tomorrow, and I'll be waiting for you. Take you right down. Can you and Dr. Sattler make that plane? I guess we can. Good. Pack lightly. You don't need passports. I'm looking forward to it. See you tomorrow, Hammond said, and he hung up. Cowan, Swain, and Ross Midday sun streamed into the San Francisco law offices of Cowan, Swain, and Ross, giving the room a cheerfulness that Donald Gennaro did not feel. He listened on the phone and looked at his boss, Daniel Ross, 
cold as an undertaker in his dark pinstripe suit. I understand, John, Gennaro said. And Grant agreed to come? Good, good. Yes, that sounds fine to me. Uh, my congratulations, John. He hung up the phone and turned to Ross. We can't trust Hammond anymore. He's under too much pressure. The EPA's investigating him, is behind schedule on his Costa Rican resort, and the investors are getting nervous. There have been too many rumors of problems down there. Too many workmen have died. And now this business about a living procomposite whatever on the mainland. What does that mean? Ross said. Maybe nothing, Gennaro said. But Hamachi is one of our principal investors. I got a report last week from Hamachi's representative in San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. According to the report, some new kind of lizard is biting children on the coast. Ross blinked. New lizard? Yes, Gennaro said. We can't screw around with this. We've got to inspect that island right away. I've asked Hammond to arrange independent site inspections every week for the next three weeks. And what does Hammond say? He insists nothing is wrong on the island, claims he has all these security precautions. But you don't believe him, Ross said. No, Gennaro said, I don't. Donald Gennaro had come to Cowan Swain from a background in investment banking. Cowan Swain's high-tech clients frequently needed capitalization, and Gennaro helped them find the money. One of his first assignments back in 1982 had been to accompany John Hammond while the old man, then nearly 70, put together the funding to start the InGen Corporation. They eventually raised almost a billion dollars, and Gennaro remembered it as a wild ride. Hammond's a dreamer, Gennaro said. A potentially dangerous dreamer, Ross said. We should never have gotten involved. What is our financial position? The firm, Gennaro said, owns 5%. General or limited? General. Ross shook his head. We should never have done that. It seemed wise at the time, Gennaro said. Hell, it was eight years ago. We took it in lieu of some fees. And if you remember, Hammond's plan was extremely speculative. He was really pushing the envelope. Nobody really thought he could pull it off. But apparently he has, Ross said. In any case, I agree that an inspection is overdue. What about your site experts? I'm starting with experts Hammond already hired as consultants early in the project. Gennaro tossed a list onto Ross's desk. First group is a paleontologist, a paleobotanist, and a mathematician. They go down this weekend. I'll go with them. Will they tell you the truth? Ross said. I think so. None of them had much to do with the island, and one of them, the mathematician Ian Malcolm, was openly hostile to the project from the start, insisted it would never work, could never work. And who else? Just a technical person, a computer system analyst. Review the park's computers and fix some bugs. He should be there by Friday morning. Fine, Ross said. You are making the arrangements? Hammond asked to place the calls himself. I think he wants to pretend that he's not in trouble, that it's just a social invitation, showing off his island. All right, Ross said, but just make sure it happens. Stay on top of it. I want this Costa Rican situation resolved within a week. Ross got up and walked out of the room. Gennaro dialed, heard the whining hiss of a radio phone. Then he heard a voice say, Grant here. Hi, Dr. Grant, this is Donald Gennaro. I'm the general counsel for InGen. We talked a few years back. I don't know if you remember. I remember, 
Grant said. Well, Gennaro said, I just got off the phone with John Hammond, who tells me the good news that you're coming down to our island in Costa Rica. Yes, Grant said, I guess we're going down there tomorrow. Well, I just want to extend my thanks to you for doing this on short notice. Everybody at InGen appreciates it. We've asked Ian Malcolm, who, like you, was one of the early consultants, to come down as well. He's the mathematician at UT in Austin. John Hammond mentioned that, Grant said. Well, good, Gennaro said. And I'll be coming too, as a matter of fact. Uh, by the way, this specimen you have found of a, a pro, procom, uh, what is it? Procom sognathus, Grant said. Yes, do you have the specimen with you, Dr. Grant, the actual specimen? No, Grant said, I've only seen an x-ray. The specimen is in New York. A woman from Columbia University called me. Well, I wonder if you could give me the details on that, Gennaro said. Then I can run down that specimen for Mr. Hammond, who's very excited about it. I'm sure you want to see the actual specimen, too. Uh, perhaps I can even get it delivered to the island while you're all down there, Gennaro said. Grant gave him the information. Well, that's fine, Dr. Grant, Gennaro said. My regards to Dr. Sattler. I look forward to meeting you and him tomorrow. And Gennaro hung up. Plans This just came, Ellie said the next day, walking to the back of the trailer with a thick manila envelope. One of the kids brought it back from town is from Hammond. Grant noticed the blue and white InGen logo as he tore open the envelope. Inside there was no cover letter, just a bound stack of paper. Pulling it out, he discovered it was blueprints. They were reduced, forming a thick book. The cover was marked Isla Nublar, Resort Guest Facilities, Full Set Safari Lodge. What the hell is this, he said. As he flipped open the book, a sheet of paper fell out. Dear Alan and Ellie, As you can imagine, we don't have much in the way of formal promotional materials yet, but this should give you some idea of the Isla Nublar project. I think it's very exciting. Looking forward to discussing this with you. Hope you can join us. Regards, John. I don't get it, Grant said. He flipped through the sheets. These are architectural plans. He turned to the top sheet. Visitor Center Stroke Lodge, Isla Nublar Resort. Client, InGen Incorporated, Palo Alto, California. Architects, Dunning, Murphy & Associates, New York. Richard Murphy, Design Partner. Theodore Chen, Senior Designer. Sheldon James, Administrative Partner. Engineers, Harlow, Whitney & Fields, Boston, Structural. A.T. Misikawa, Osaka, Mechanical. Landscaping, Shepperton Rogers, London. A. Ashikiga, H. Ayasu, Kanazawa. Electrical, N.V. Kobayashi, Tokyo. A.R. Makasawa, Senior Consultant. Computer C-Stroke C, Integrated Computer Systems Incorporated, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Dennis Nedry, Project Supervisor. Grant turned to the plans themselves. They were stamped, Industrial Secrets Do Not Copy, and Confidential Work Product Not for Distribution. Each sheet was numbered, and at the top... These plans represent the confidential creations of InGen Incorporated. You must have signed document 112-4A or you risk prosecution. Looks pretty paranoid to me, he said. Maybe there's a reason, Ali said. The next page was a topographical map. 
It showed Isla Nublar as an inverted teardrop, bulging at the north, tapering at the south. The island was eight miles long, and the map divided it into several large sections. The northern section was marked Visitor Area, and it contained structures marked Visitor Arrivals, Visitor Center Stroke Administration, Power Stroke Desalinization Stroke Support, Hammond Res, and Safari Lodge. Grant could see the outline of a swimming pool, the rectangles of tennis courts, and the round squiggles that represented planting and shrubbery. Looks like a resort, all right, Ellie said. There followed detailed sheets for the safari lodge itself. In the elevation sketches, the lodge looked dramatic, a long, low building with a series of pyramid shapes on the roof, but there was little about the other buildings in the visitor area, and the rest of the island was even more mysterious. As far as Grant could tell, it was mostly open space. A network of roads, tunnels, and outlying buildings, and a long, thin lake that appeared to be man-made with concrete dams and barriers. But for the most part, the island was divided into big, curving areas with very little development at all. Each area was marked by codes. Stroke P, stroke PROC, stroke V, stroke 2A. Stroke D, stroke trice, stroke L, stroke 5, parenthesis 4A plus 1, end parenthesis, and so on. Is there an explanation for the codes, she said. Grant flipped the pages rapidly, but he couldn't find one. Maybe they took it out, she said. I'm telling you, Grant said, paranoid. He looked at the big, curving divisions separated from one another by the network of roads. There were only six divisions on the whole island, and each division was separated from the road by a concrete moat. Outside each moat was a fence with a little lightning sign alongside it. That mystified them until they were finally able to figure out it meant the fences were electrified. That's odd, she said. Electrified fences at a resort? Miles of them, Grant said, electrified fences and moats together, and usually with a road alongside them as well. Just like a zoo, Ellie said. They went back to the topographical map and looked closely at the contour lines. The roads had been placed oddly. The main road ran north-south, right through the central hills of the island, including one section of road that seemed to be literally cut into the side of a cliff above a river. It began to look as if there had been a deliberate effort to leave these open areas as big enclosures, separated from the roads by moats and electric fences, and the roads were raised up above ground level so you could see over the fences. You know, Ellie said, some of these dimensions are enormous. Look at this. This concrete moat is 30 feet wide. That's like a military fortification. So are these buildings, Grant said. He had noticed that each open division had a few buildings, usually located in out-of-the-way corners, but the buildings were all concrete, with thick walls. In side-view elevations, they looked like concrete bunkers, with small windows, like the Nazi pillboxes from old war movies. At that moment, they heard a muffled explosion, and Grant put the papers aside. Back to work, he said. Fire! There was a slight vibration, and then yellow contour lines traced across the computer screen. This time, the resolution was perfect. 
and Alan Grant had a glimpse of the skeleton beautifully defined, the long neck arched back. It was unquestionably an infant velociraptor, and it looked in perfect... The screen went blank. I hate computers, Grant said, squinting in the sun. What happened now? Lost the integrator input, one of the kids said. Just a minute. The kid bent to look at the tangle of wires going into the back of the battery-powered portable computer. They had set the computer up on a beer carton on top of Hill 4, not far from the device they called Thumper. Grant sat down on the side of the hill and looked at his watch. He said to Allie, We're gonna have to do this the old-fashioned way. One of the kids overheard, Ah, Alan. Look, Grant said, I've got a plane to catch, and I want the fossil protected before I go. Once you began to expose a fossil, you had to continue or risk losing it. Visitors imagined the landscape of the Badlands to be unchanging, but in fact, it was continuously eroding, literally right before your eyes. All day long, you could hear the clatter of pebbles rolling down the crumbling hillside, and there was always a risk of a rainstorm. Even a brief shower would wash away a delicate fossil. Thus, Grant's partially exposed skeleton was at risk, and it had to be protected until he returned. Fossil protection ordinarily consisted of a tarp over the site and a trench around the perimeter to control water runoff. The question was how large a trench the Velociraptor fossil required. To decide that, they were using computer-assisted sonic tomography, or CAST, C-A-S-T. This was a new procedure in which Thumper fired a soft lead slug into the ground, setting up shock waves that were read by the computer and assembled into a kind of X-ray image of the hillside. They had been using it all summer with varying results. Thumper was 20 feet away now, a big silver box on wheels with an umbrella on top. It looked like an ice cream vendor's pushcart parked incongruously on the Badlands. Thumper had two youthful attendants loading the next soft lead pellet. So far, the cast program merely located the extent of fines, helping Grant's team to dig more efficiently, but the kids claimed that within a few years, it would be possible to generate an image so detailed that excavation would be redundant. You could get a perfect image of the bones in three dimensions, and it promised a whole new era of archaeology without excavation. But none of that had happened yet, and the equipment that worked flawlessly in the university laboratory proved pitifully delicate and fickle in the field. How much longer, Grant said. We got it now, Alan. It's not bad. Grant went to look at the computer screen. He saw the complete skeleton traced in bright yellow. It was indeed a young specimen. The outstanding characteristic of Velociraptor, the single-toed claw, which in a full-grown animal was a curved six-inch-long weapon capable of ripping open its prey, was in this infant no larger than the thorn on a rosebush. It was hardly visible at all on the screen. And Velociraptor was a lightly-built dinosaur in any case, an animal as fine-boned as a bird, and presumably as intelligent. Here, the skeleton appeared in perfect order, except that the head and neck were bent back toward the posterior. Such neck flexion was so common in fossils that some scientists had formulated a theory to explain it, suggesting that the dinosaurs had become extinct because they had been poisoned by the evolving alkaloids in plants. The twisted neck was thought to signify the death agony of the dinosaurs. Grant had finally put that one to rest.
by demonstrating that many species of birds and reptiles underwent a post-mortem contraction of posterior neck ligaments, which bent the head backward in a characteristic way. It had nothing to do with the cause of death. It had to do with the way a carcass dried in the sun. Grant saw that this particular skeleton had also been twisted laterally, so that the right leg and foot were raised up above the backbone. It looks kind of distorted, one of the kids said, but I don't think it's the computer. No, Grant said, it's just time. Lots and lots of time. Grant knew that people could not imagine geological time. Human life was lived on another scale of time entirely. An apple turned brown in a few minutes. Silverware turned black in a few days. A compost heap decayed in a season. A child grew up in a decade. None of these everyday human experiences prepared people to be able to imagine the meaning of 80 million years, the length of time that had passed since this little animal had died. In the classroom, Grant had tried different comparisons. If you imagined the human lifespan of 60 years was compressed to a day, then 80 million years would still be 3,652 years, older than the pyramids. The velociraptor had been dead a long time. Doesn't look very fearsome, one of the kids said. He wasn't, Grant said, at least not until he grew up. Probably this baby had scavenged, feeding off carcasses slain by the adults after the big animals had gorged themselves and lay basking in the sun. Carnivores could eat as much as 25% of their body weight in a single meal, and it made them sleepy afterward. The babies would chitter and scramble over the indulgent, somnolent bodies of the adults and nip little bites from the dead animal. The babies were probably cute little animals. But an adult velociraptor was another matter entirely. Pound for pound, a velociraptor was the most rapacious dinosaur that ever lived. Although relatively small, about 200 pounds, the size of a leopard, velociraptors were quick, intelligent, and vicious, able to attack with sharp jaws, powerful clawed forearms, and the devastating single claw on the foot. Velociraptors hunted in packs, and Grant thought it must have been a sight to see a dozen of these animals racing at full speed, leaping onto the back of a much larger dinosaur, tearing at the neck and slashing at the ribs and belly. We're running out of time, Ellie said, bringing him back. Grant gave instructions for the trench. From the computer image, they knew the skeleton lay in a relatively confined area. A ditch around a two-meter square would be sufficient. Meanwhile, Ellie lashed down the tarp that covered the side of the hill. Grant helped her pound in the final stakes. How did the baby die? One of the kids asked. I doubt we'll know, Grant replied. Infant mortality in the wild is high. In African parks, it runs 70% among some carnivores. It could have been anything, disease, separation from the group, anything, or even attack by an adult. We know these animals hunted in packs, but we don't know anything about their social behavior in a group. The students nodded. They had all studied animal behavior, and they knew, for example, that when a new male took over a lion pride, the first thing he did was kill all the cubs. The reason was apparently genetic. The male had evolved to disseminate his genes as widely as possible, and by killing the cubs, he brought all the females into heat so that he could impregnate them. 
It also prevented the females from wasting their time nurturing the offspring of another male. Perhaps the Velociraptor hunting pack was also ruled by a dominant male. They knew so little about dinosaurs, Grant thought. After 150 years of research and excavation all around the world, they still knew almost nothing about what the dinosaurs had really been like. We've got to go, Ali said, if we're going to get the Shoto by five. Hammond. Dinaro's secretary bustled in with a new suitcase. It still had the sales tags on it. You know, Mr. Gennaro, she said severely, when you forget to pack, it makes me think you don't really want to go on this trip. Maybe you're right, Gennaro said. I'm missing my kid's birthday. Saturday was Amanda's birthday, and Elizabeth had invited 20 screaming four-year-olds to share it, as well as Cappy the Clown and a magician. His wife hadn't been happy to hear that Gennaro was going out of town. Neither had Amanda. Well, I did the best I could on short notice, his secretary said. There's running shoes your size, and khaki shorts and shirts, and a shaving kit. A pair of jeans and a sweatshirt if it gets cold. The car is downstairs to take you to the airport. You have to leave now to make the flight. She left. Gennaro walked down the hallway, tearing the sales tags off the suitcase. As he passed the all-glass conference room, Dan Ross left the table and came outside. Have a good trip, Ross said, but let's be very clear about one thing. I don't know how bad this situation actually is, Donald, but if there's a problem on that island, burn it to the ground. Jesus, Dan, we're talking about a big investment. Don't hesitate. Don't think about it. Just do it. Hear me? Gennaro nodded. I hear you, he said, but Hammond... Screw Hammond, Ross said. My boy, my boy, the familiar raspy voice said. How have you been, my boy? Very well, sir, Gennaro replied. He leaned back in the padded leather chair of the Gulfstream II jet as it flew east toward the Rocky Mountains. You never call me anymore, Hammond said reproachfully. I've missed you, Donald. How is your lovely wife? She's fine, Elizabeth's fine. We have a little girl now. Wonderful, wonderful. Children are such a delight. Uh, she'd get a kick out of our new park in Costa Rica. Gennaro had forgotten how short Hammond was. As he sat in the chair, his feet didn't touch the carpeting. He swung his legs as he talked. There was a childlike quality to the man, even though Hammond must now be, what, 75, 76, something like that. He looked older than Gennaro remembered, but then Gennaro hadn't seen him for almost five years. Hammond was flamboyant, a born showman. And back in 1983, he had had an elephant that he carried around with him in a little cage. The elephant was nine inches high and a foot long and perfectly formed, except his tusks were stunted. Hammond took the elephant with him to fundraising meetings. Dinaro usually carried it into the room, the cage covered with a little blanket like a tea cozy, and Hammond would give his usual speech about the prospects for developing what he called consumer biologicals. Then, at the dramatic moment, Hammond would whip away the blanket to reveal the elephant, and he would ask for money. The elephant was always a rousing success. Its tiny body, hardly bigger than a cat's, promised untold wonders to come from the laboratory of Norman Atherton, the Stanford geneticist who was Hammond's partner in the new venture. But as Hammond talked about the elephant, he left a great deal unsaid. 
For example, Hammond was starting a genetics company, but the tiny elephant hadn't been made by any genetic procedure. Atherton had simply taken a dwarf elephant embryo and raised it in an artificial womb with hormonal modifications. That in itself was quite an achievement, but nothing like what Hammond hinted had been done. Also, Atherton hadn't been able to duplicate his miniature elephant, and he'd tried. For one thing, everybody who saw the elephant wanted one. Then, too, the elephant was prone to colds, particularly during winter. The sneezes coming through the little trunk filled Hammond with dread. And sometimes the elephant would get his tusks stuck between the bars of the cage and snort irritably as he tried to get free. Sometimes he got infections around the tusk line. Hammond always fretted that his elephant would die before Atherton could grow a replacement. Hammond also concealed from prospective investors the fact that the elephant's behavior had changed substantially in the process of miniaturization. The little creature might look like an elephant, but he acted like a vicious rodent, quick-moving and mean-tempered. Hammond discouraged people from petting the elephant to avoid nipped fingers. And although Hammond spoke confidently of $7 billion in annual revenues by 1993, his project was intensely speculative. Hammond had vision and enthusiasm, but there was no certainty that his plan would work at all, particularly since Norman Atherton, the brains behind the project, had terminal cancer, which was a final point Hammond neglected to mention. Even so, with Gennaro's help, Hammond got his money. Between September of 1983 and November of 1985, John Alfred Hammond and his pachyderm portfolio raised $870 million in venture capital to finance his proposed corporation, International Genetic Technologies Incorporated. And they could have raised more, except Hammond insisted on absolute secrecy, and he offered no return on capital for at least five years. That scared a lot of investors off. In the end, they'd had to take mostly Japanese consortia. The Japanese were the only investors who had the patience. Sitting in the leather chair of the jet, Gennaro thought about how evasive Hammond was. The old man was now ignoring the fact that Gennaro's law firm had forced this trip on him. Instead, Hammond behaved as if they were engaged in a purely social outing. It's too bad you didn't bring your family with you, Donald, he said. Gennaro shrugged. It's my daughter's birthday. Twenty kids already scheduled. The cake and the clown. You know how it is. Oh, I understand, Hammond said. Kids set their hearts on things. Anyway, is the park ready for visitors? Gennaro asked. Well, not officially, Hammond said. But the hotel is built, so there is a place to stay. And the animals? Of course, the animals are all there. All in their spaces. Gennaro said... I remember in the original proposal you were hoping for a total of 12... Oh, we're far beyond that. We have 238 animals, Donald. 238? The old man giggled, pleased at Gennaro's reaction. You can't imagine it. We have herds of them. 238? How many species? 15 different species, Donald. That's incredible, Gennaro said. That's fantastic. And what about all the other things you wanted, the facilities, the computers? All of it, all of it, Hammond said. Everything on that island is state-of-the-art. You'll see for yourself, Donald, it's perfectly wonderful. That's why this concern is so misplaced. 
There's absolutely no problem with the island. Gennaro said, then there should be absolutely no problem with an inspection. And there isn't, Hammond said, but it slows things down. Everything has to stop for the official visit. You've had delays anyway. You've postponed the opening. Oh, that. Hammond tugged at the red silk handkerchief in the breast pocket of his sport coat. It was bound to happen. Bound to happen. Why? Gennaro asked. Well, Donald, Hammond said, to explain that, you have to go back to the initial concept of the resort. The concept of the most advanced amusement park in the world, combining the latest electronic and biological technologies. I'm not talking about rides. Everybody has rides. Coney Island has rides. And these days, everybody has animatronic environments. The haunted house, the pirate den, the wild west, the earthquake. Everyone has those things. So we set out to make biological attractions, living attractions. Attractions so astonishing they would capture the imagination of the entire world. Gennaro had to smile. It was almost the same speech, word for word, that he had used on the investors so many years ago. And we can never forget the ultimate object of the project in Costa Rica, to make money, Hammond said, staring out the windows of the jet. Lots and lots of money. I remember, Gennaro said. And the secret to making money in a park, Hammond said, is to limit your personnel costs. The food handlers, ticket takers, clean-up crews, repair teams. To make a park that runs with minimal staff. That was why we invested in all the computer technology. We automated wherever we could. I remember. But the plain fact is, Hammond said, when you put together all the animals and all the computer systems, you run into snags. Whoever got a major computer system up and running on schedule? Nobody I know. So you've just had normal startup delays? Yes, that's right, Hammond said. Normal delays. I heard there were accidents during construction, Gennaro said. Some workmen died. Yes, there were several accidents, Hammond said. And a total of three deaths. Two workers died building the cliff road. One other died as a result of a, an earth mover accident in January. But we haven't had any accidents for months now. He put his hand on the younger man's arm. Donald, he said, believe me when I tell you that everything on the island is going forward as planned. Everything on that island is perfectly fine. The intercom clicked. The pilot said, Seatbelts, please. We're landing in Shoto. Shoto. Dry plains stretched away toward distant black buttes. The afternoon wind blew dust and tumbleweed across the cracked concrete. Grant stood with Ellie near the jeep and waited while the sleek Grumman jet circled for a landing. I hate to wait on the money men, Grant grumbled. Ellie shrugged. Goes with a job. Although many fields of science, such as physics and chemistry, had become federally funded, paleontology remained strongly dependent on private patrons. Quite apart from his own curiosity about the island in Costa Rica, Grant understood that if John Hammond asked for his help, he would give it. That was how patronage worked, how it had always worked. The little jet landed and rolled quickly toward them. Ellie shouldered her bag. The jet came to a stop, and a stewardess in a blue uniform opened the door. 
Inside, he was surprised at how cramped it was, despite the luxurious appointments. Grant had to hunch over as he went to shake Hammond's hand. Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler, Hammond said. It's good of you to join us. Allow me to introduce my associate, Donald Gennaro. Gennaro was a stocky, muscular man in his mid-thirties, wearing an Armani suit and wireframe glasses. Grant disliked him on sight. He shook hands quickly. When Ellie shook hands, Gennaro said in surprise, You're a woman. These things happen, she said, and Grant thought, She doesn't like him either. Hammond turned to Gennaro. You know, of course, what Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler do. They're paleontologists. They dig up dinosaurs. And then he began to laugh as if he found the idea very funny. Take your seats, please, the stewardess said, closing the door. Immediately, the plane began to move. You'll have to excuse us, Hammond said, but we are in a bit of a rush. Donald thinks it's important we get right down there. The pilot announced four hours flying time to Dallas, where they would refuel, and then go on to Costa Rica, arriving the following morning. And how long will we be in Costa Rica? Grant asked. Well, that really depends, Gennaro said. We have a few things to clear up. Take my word for it, Hammond said, turning to Grant. We'll be down there no more than 48 hours. Grant buckled his seatbelt. This island of yours that we're going to... I haven't heard anything about it before. Is it some kind of secret? In a way, Hammond said. We have been very, very careful about making sure nobody knows about it until the day we finally open that island to a surprised and delighted public. Target of Opportunity the Biosyn Corporation of Cupertino, California, had never called an emergency meeting of its board of directors. The ten directors now sitting in the conference room were irritable and impatient. It was 8 p.m. They had been talking among themselves for the last ten minutes, but slowly had fallen silent, shuffling papers, looking pointedly at their watches. What are we waiting for? one asked. One more, Lewis Dodgson said. We need one more. He glanced at his watch. Ron Meyer's office had said he was coming up on the six o'clock plane from San Diego. He should be here by now, even allowing for traffic from the airport. You need a quorum? Another director asked. Yes, Dodgson said, we do. That shut them up for a moment. A quorum meant that they were going to be asked to make an important decision. And God knows they were, although Dodgson would have preferred not to call a meeting at all. But Steingarten, the head of Biasin, was adamant. You'll have to get their agreement for this one, Lou, he had said. Depending on who you talk to, Lewis Dodgson was famous as the most aggressive geneticist of his generation or the most reckless. Thirty-four, balding, hawk-faced, and intense, he had been dismissed by Johns Hopkins as a graduate student for planning gene therapy on human patients without obtaining the proper FDA protocols. Hired by Biosyn, he had conducted the controversial rabies vaccine test in Chile. Now he was the head of product development at Biosyn, which supposedly consisted of reverse engineering, taking a competitor's product, tearing it apart, learning how it worked, and then making your own version. In practice, it involved industrial espionage, much of it directed toward the InGen Corporation. In the 1980s, a few genetic engineering companies began to ask, 
What is the biological equivalent of a Sony Walkman? These companies weren't interested in pharmaceuticals or health. They were interested in entertainment, sports, leisure activities, cosmetics, and pets. The perceived demand for consumer biologicals in the 1990s was high. InGen and Biosyn were both at work in this field. Biosyn had already achieved some success, engineering a new pale trout. This trout was easier to spot in streams and was said to represent a step forward in angling. At least it eliminated complaints to the fish and game department that there were no trout in the streams. The fact that the pale trout sometimes died of sunburn and that its flesh was soggy and tasteless was not discussed. Biosyn was still working on that, and uh, the door opened and Ron Meyer entered the room, slipped into a seat. Dodgson now had his quorum. He immediately stood. Gentlemen, he said, we're here tonight to consider a target of opportunity, InGen. Dodgson quickly reviewed the background. InGen's startup in 1983 with Japanese investors, the purchase of three Cray XMP supercomputers, the purchase of Isla Nublar in Costa Rica, the stockpiling of amber, the unusual donations to zoos around the world, from the New York Zoological Society to the Ranthapur Wildlife Park in India. Despite all these clues, Dodgson said, we still had no idea where InGen might be going. The company seemed obviously focused on animals, and they had hired researchers with an interest in the past, paleobiologists, DNA phylogeneticists, and so on. Then in 1987, InGen bought an obscure company called Millipore Plastic Products in Nashville, Tennessee. This was an agribusiness company that had recently patented a new plastic with the characteristics of an avian eggshell. This plastic could be shaped into an egg and used to grow chick embryos. Starting the following year, InGen took the entire output of this millipore plastic for its own use. Dr. Dodgson, this is all very interesting. At the same time, Dodgson continued, construction was begun on Isla Nublar. This involved massive earthworks, including a shallow lake two miles long in the center of the island. Plans for resort facilities were let out with a high degree of confidentiality. But it appears that InGen has built a private zoo of large dimensions on the island. One of the directors leaned forward and said, Dr. Dodgson, so what? It's not an ordinary zoo, Dodgson said. This zoo is unique in the world. It seems that InGen has done something quite extraordinary. They have managed to clone extinct animals from the past. What animals? Animals that hatch from eggs and that require a lot of room in a zoo. What animals? Dinosaurs, Dodgson said. They are cloning dinosaurs. The consternation that followed was entirely misplaced in Dodgson's view. The trouble with money men was that they didn't keep up. They had invested in a field, but they didn't know what was possible. In fact, there had been discussion of cloning dinosaurs in the technical literature as far back as 1982. With each passing year, the manipulation of DNA had grown easier. Genetic material had already been extracted from Egyptian mummies and from the hide of a quagga, a zebra-like African animal that had become extinct in the 1880s. By 1985, it seemed possible that quagga DNA might be reconstituted and a new animal grown. 
If so, it would be the first creature brought back from extinction solely by reconstruction of its DNA. If that was possible, what else was also possible? The mastodon? The saber-toothed tiger? The dodo? Or even a dinosaur? Of course, no dinosaur DNA was known to exist anywhere in the world. But by grinding up large quantities of dinosaur bones, it might be possible to extract fragments of DNA. Formerly, it was thought that fossilization eliminated all DNA. Now, that was recognized as untrue. If enough DNA fragments were recovered, it might be possible to clone a living animal. Back in 1982, the technical problems had seemed daunting, but there was no theoretical barrier. It was merely difficult, expensive, and unlikely to work. Yet it was certainly possible, if anyone cared to try. InGen had apparently decided to try. What they have done, Dodgson said, is build the greatest single tourist attraction in the history of the world. As you know, zoos are extremely popular. Last year, more Americans visited zoos than all professional baseball and football games combined. And the Japanese love zoos. There are 50 zoos in Japan and more being built. And for this zoo, InGen can charge whatever they want. $2,000 a day, $10,000 a day. And then there is the merchandising, the picture books, t-shirts, video games, caps, stuffed toys, comic books, and pets. Pets? Of course. If InGen can make life-size dinosaurs, they can also make pygmy dinosaurs as household pets. What child won't want a little dinosaur as a pet, a little patented animal for their very own? InGen will sell millions of them. And InGen will engineer them so that these pet dinosaurs can only eat InGen pet food. Jesus, somebody said. Exactly, Dodgson said. The zoo is the centerpiece of an enormous enterprise. You said these dinosaurs will be patented? Yes. Genetically engineered animals can now be patented. The Supreme Court ruled on that in favor of Harvard in 1987. InGen will own its dinosaurs and no one else can legally make them. Well, what prevents us from creating our own dinosaurs? Someone said. Nothing, except that they have a five-year start. It'll be almost impossible to catch up before the end of the century. He paused. Of course... If we could obtain examples of their dinosaurs, we could reverse-engineer them and make our own, with enough modifications in the DNA to evade their patents. Can we obtain examples of their dinosaurs? Dodgson paused. I believe we can, yes. Somebody cleared his throat. There wouldn't be anything illegal about it. Oh, no, Dodgson said quickly, nothing illegal. I'm talking about a legitimate source of their DNA, a disgruntled employee or some trash improperly disposed of, something like that. Do you have a legitimate source, Dr. Dodgson? I do, Dodgson said. But I'm afraid there is some urgency to the decision because InGen is experiencing a small crisis and my source will have to act within the next 24 hours. A long silence descended over the room. The men looked at the secretary taking notes and the tape recorder on the table in front of her. I don't see the need for a formal resolution on this, Dodgson said. Just a sense of the room as to whether you feel I should proceed. Slowly the heads nodded. Nobody spoke. Nobody went on record. They just nodded silently. Thank you for coming, gentlemen, 
Dodgson said. I'll take it from here. Airport Lewis Dodgson entered the coffee shop in the departure building of the San Francisco airport and looked around quickly. His man was already there, waiting at the counter. Dodgson sat down next to him and placed the briefcase on the floor between them. You're late, pal, the man said. He looked at the straw hat Dodgson was wearing and laughed. What is this supposed to be, a disguise? You never know, Dodgson said, suppressing his anger. For six months, Dodgson had patiently cultivated this man, who had grown more obnoxious and arrogant with each meeting. But there was nothing Dodgson could do about that. Both men knew exactly what the stakes were. Bioengineered DNA was, wait for wait, the most valuable material in the world. A single microscopic bacterium, too small to see with a naked eye, but containing the genes for a heart attack enzyme streptokinase, or for ice minus, which prevented frost damage to crops, might be worth five billion dollars to the right buyer. And that fact of life had created a bizarre new world of industrial espionage. Dodgson was especially skilled at it. In 1987, he convinced a disgruntled geneticist to quit Cetus for biosin and take five strains of engineered bacteria with her. The geneticist simply put a drop of each on the fingernails of one hand and walked out the door. But InGen presented a tougher challenge. Dodgson wanted more than bacterial DNA. He wanted frozen embryos. And he knew InGen guarded its embryos with the most elaborate security measures. To obtain them, he needed an InGen employee who had access to the embryos, who was willing to steal them, and who could defeat the security. Such a person was not easy to find. Dodgson had finally located a susceptible InGen employee earlier in the year. Although this particular person had no access to genetic material, Dodgson kept up the contact, meeting the man monthly at Carlos and Charlie's in Silicon Valley, helping him in small ways. And now that InGen was inviting contractors and advisors to visit the island, it was the moment that Dodgson had been waiting for, because it meant his man would have access to embryos. Let's get down to it, the man said. I've got ten minutes before my flight. You want to go over it again? Dodgson said. Hell no, Dr. Dodgson, the man said. I want to see the damn money. Dodgson flipped the latch on the briefcase and opened it a few inches. The man glanced down casually. That's all of it? That's half of it. $750,000. Okay, fine. The man turned away, drank his coffee. That's fine, Dr. Dodgson. Dodgson quickly locked the briefcase. That's for all 15 species, you remember. I remember 15 species frozen embryos. And how am I going to transport them? Dodgson handed the man a large can of Gillette foamy shaving cream. That's it? That's it. They may check my luggage. Dodgson shrugged. Press the top, he said. The man pressed it, and white shaving cream puffed into his hand. Huh, not bad. He wiped the foam on the edge of his plate. Not bad. The can's a little heavier than usual, is all. Dodgson's technical team had been assembling it around the clock for the last two days. Quickly, he showed him how it worked. How much coolant gas is inside? Enough for 36 hours. The embryos have to be back in San Jose by then. That's up to your guy in the boat, the man said. Better make sure he has a portable cooler on board. 
I'll do that, Dodgson said. And let's just review the bidding. The deal is the same, Dodgson said. 50,000 on delivery of each embryo. If they're viable, an additional 50,000 each. That's fine. Just make sure you have the boat waiting at the east dock of the island Friday night. Not the north dock, where the big supply boats arrive. The east dock. It's a small utility dock. You got that? I got it, Dodgson said. When will you be back in San Jose? Probably Sunday, the man pushed away from the counter. Dodgson fretted. You're sure you know how to work the... I know, the man said. Believe me, I know. Also, Dodgson said, we think the island maintains constant radio contact with InGen corporate headquarters in California, so look, I've got it covered, the man said. Just relax and get the money ready. I want it all, Sunday morning in San Jose Airport in cash. It'll be waiting for you, Dodgson said. Don't worry. Malcolm Shortly before midnight, he stepped on the plane at the Dallas airport. A tall, thin, balding man of 35, dressed entirely in black. Black shirt, black trousers, black socks, black sneakers. Ah, Dr. Malcolm, Hammond said, smiling with forced graciousness. Malcolm grinned. Hello, John. Yes, I'm afraid your old nemesis is here. Malcolm shook hands with everyone, saying quickly, Ian Malcolm, how do you do? I do maths. He struck Grant as being more amused by the outing than anything else. Certainly Grant recognized his name. Ian Malcolm was one of the most famous of the new generation of mathematicians who were openly interested in how the real world works. These scholars broke with the cloistered tradition of mathematics in several important ways. For one thing, they used computers constantly, a practice traditional mathematicians frowned on. For another, they worked almost exclusively with non-linear equations in the emerging field called chaos theory. For a third, they appeared to care that their mathematics described something that actually existed in the real world. And finally, as if to emphasize their emergence from academia into the world, they dressed and spoke with what one senior mathematician called a deplorable excess of personality. In fact, they often behaved like rock stars, Malcolm sat in one of the padded chairs. The stewardess asked him if he wanted a drink. He said, Diet Coke, shaken, not stirred. Humid Dallas air drifted through the open door. Ellie said, Isn't it a little warm for black? You're extremely pretty, Dr. Sattler, he said. I could look at your legs all day. Uh, but no, as a matter of fact, black is an excellent color for heat. If you remember your black body radiation, black is actually best in heat. Efficient radiation. In any case, I wear only two colors, black and gray. Ellie was staring at him, her mouth open. These colors are appropriate for any occasion, Malcolm continued, and they go well together, should I mistakenly put on a pair of gray socks with my black trousers. But don't you find it boring to wear only two colors? Not at all. I find it liberating. I believe my life has value, and I don't want to waste it thinking about clothing, Malcolm said. I don't want to think about what I will wear in the morning. Truly, can you imagine anything more boring than fashion? Professional sports, perhaps. Grown men swatting little balls while the rest of the world pays money to applaud. But on the whole, I find fashion even more tedious than sports. Dr. Malcolm, Hammond explained, is a man of strong opinions. 
And mad as a hatter, Malcolm said cheerfully. But you must admit, these are non-trivial issues. We live in a world of frightful givens. It is given that you will behave like this, given that you will care about that. No one thinks about the givens. Isn't it amazing? In the information society, nobody thinks. We expected to banish paper, but we actually banished thought. Hammond turned to Gennaro and raised his hands. You invited him. And a lucky thing, too, Malcolm said, because it sounds as if you have a serious problem. We have no problem, Hammond said quickly. I always maintained this island would be unworkable, Malcolm said. I predicted it from the beginning. He reached into a soft leather briefcase. And I trust by now we all know what the eventual outcome is going to be. You're going to have to shut the thing down. Shut it down? Hammond stood angrily. This is ridiculous. Malcolm shrugged, indifferent to Hammond's outburst. I brought copies of my original paper for you to look at, he said. The original consultancy paper I did for InGen. The mathematics are a bit sticky, but I can walk you through it. Are you leaving now? I have some phone calls to make, Hammond said, and went into the adjoining cabin. Well, it's a long flight, Malcolm said to the others. At least my paper will give you something to do. The plane flew through the night. Grant knew that Ian Malcolm had his share of detractors, and he could understand why some found his style too abrasive and his applications of chaos theory too glib. Grant thumbed through the paper, glancing at the equations. Gennaro said, Your paper concludes that Hammond's Island is bound to fail? Correct. Because of chaos theory? Correct. To be more precise, because of the behavior of the system in phase space. Gennaro tossed the paper aside and said, Can you explain this in English? Surely, Malcolm said. Let's see where we have to start. Do you know what a nonlinear equation is? No. Strange attractors? No. All right, Malcolm said. Let's go back to the beginning. He paused, staring at the ceiling. Physics has had great success at describing certain kinds of behavior. Planets in orbit? Spacecraft going to the moon, pendulums and springs, and rolling balls, that sort of thing. The regular movement of objects. These are described by what are called linear equations. And mathematicians can solve those equations easily. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. Okay, Gennaro said. But there is another kind of behavior which physics handles badly. For example, anything to do with turbulence. Water coming out of a spout, air moving over an airplane wing, weather, blood flowing through the heart. Turbulent events are described by non-linear equations. They're hard to solve. In fact, they're usually impossible to solve. So, physics has never understood this whole class of events. Until about ten years ago. The new theory that describes them is called chaos theory. Chaos theory originally grew out of attempts to make computer models of weather in the 1960s. Weather is a big, complicated system, namely the Earth's atmosphere as it interacts with the land and the sun. The behavior of this big, complicated system always defied understanding, so naturally we couldn't predict weather. But what the early researchers learned from computer models was that even if you could understand it, you still couldn't predict it. Weather prediction is absolutely impossible. The reason is that the behavior of the system is sensitively dependent on initial conditions. 
you lost me, Gennaro said. If I use a cannon to fire a shell of a certain weight at a certain speed and a certain angle of inclination, and if I then fire a second shell with almost the same weight, speed, and angle, what will happen? The two shells will land at uh, almost the same spot. Right, Malcolm said. That's linear dynamics. Okay. But if I have a weather system that I start up with a certain temperature and a certain wind speed and a certain humidity, and if I then repeat it with almost the same temperature, wind, and humidity, the second system will not behave almost the same. It'll wander off and rapidly will become very different from the first. Thunderstorms instead of sunshine. That's nonlinear dynamics. They are sensitive to initial conditions. Tiny differences become amplified. I think I see, Gennaro said. The shorthand is the butterfly effect. A butterfly flaps its wings in Peking, and weather in New York is different. So chaos is all just random and unpredictable, Gennaro said. Is that it? No, Malcolm said. We actually find hidden regularities within the complex variety of a system's behavior. That's why chaos has now become a very broad theory that's used to study everything from the stock market to rioting crowds to brainwaves during epilepsy. Any sort of complex system where there is confusion and unpredictability. We can find an underlying order, okay? Okay, Gennaro said, but what is this underlying order? It's essentially characterized by the movement of the system within phase space, Malcolm said. Jesus, Gennaro said, all I want to know is why you think Hammond's Island can't work. I understand, Malcolm said, I'll get there. Chaos theory says two things. First, that complex systems like weather have an underlying order. Second, the reverse of that, that simple systems can produce complex behavior. You hit a pool ball, and it starts to carom off the sides of the table. In theory, that's a fairly simple system, almost a Newtonian system. Since you can know the force imparted to the ball and the mass of the ball, and you can calculate the angles at which it will strike the walls, you can predict the future behavior of the ball. In theory, you could predict the behavior of the ball far into the future, as it keeps bouncing from side to side. You could predict where it will end up three hours from now, in theory. Okay, Gennaro nodded. But in fact, Malcolm said, it turns out you can't predict more than a few seconds into the future. Because almost immediately, very small effects, imperfections in the surface of the ball, tiny indentations in the wood of the table start to make a difference. And it doesn't take long before they overpower your careful calculations. So it turns out that this simple system of a pool ball on a table has unpredictable behavior. Okay. And Hammond's project, Malcolm said, is another apparently simple system, animals within a zoo environment, that will eventually show unpredictable behavior. You know this because of theory, Malcolm said. But hadn't you better see the island to see what he's actually done? No, that is quite unnecessary. The details don't matter. Theory tells me that the island will quickly proceed to behave in unpredictable fashion. And you're confident of your theory? Oh, yes, Malcolm said, totally confident. He sat back in the chair. There is a problem with that island. 
It is an accident waiting to happen. Isla Nublar. With a whine, the rotors began to swing in circles overhead, casting shadows on the runway of San Jose Airport. Grant listened to the crackle in his earphones as the pilot talked to the tower. They had picked up another passenger in San Jose, a man named Dennis Nedry, who had flown in to meet them. He was fat and sloppy, eating a candy bar, and there was sticky chocolate on his fingers and flecks of aluminum foil on his shirt. Nedry had mumbled something about doing computers on the island and hadn't offered to shake hands. Through the plexi bubble, Grant watched the airport concrete drop away beneath his feet, and he saw the shadow of the helicopter racing along as they went west toward the mountains. It's about a 40-minute trip, Hammond said from one of the rear seats. Grant watched the low hills rise up, and then they were passing through intermittent clouds breaking out into sunshine. The mountains were rugged, though he was surprised at the amount of deforestation, acre after acre of denuded, eroded hills. Costa Rica, Hammond said, has better population control than other countries in Central America, but even so, the land is badly deforested. Most of this is within the last ten years. They came down out of the clouds on the other side of the mountains, and Grant saw the beaches of the west coast. They flashed over a small coastal village. Bahia Anasco, the pilot said. Fishing village, he pointed north. Up the coast there, you see the Cabo Blanco Preserve. They have beautiful beaches. The pilot headed straight out over the ocean. The water turned green, and then deep aquamarine. The sun shone on the water. It was about ten in the morning. Just a few minutes now, Hammond said, and we should be seeing Isla Nublar. Isla Nublar, Hammond explained, was not a true island. Rather, it was a sea mount, a volcanic upthrusting of rock from the ocean floor. Its volcanic origins can be seen all over the island, Hammond said. There are steam vents in many places, and the ground is often hot underfoot. Because of this, and also because of prevailing currents, Isla Nublar lies in a foggy area. As we get there, you will see... Ah, there we are! The helicopter rushed forward low to the water. Ahead, Grant saw an island, rugged and craggy, rising sharply from the ocean. Christ, it looks like Alcatraz, Malcolm said. Its forested slopes were wreathed in fog, giving the island a mysterious appearance. Much larger, of course, Hammond said. Eight miles long and three miles wide at the widest point. In total, some twenty-two square miles, making it the largest private animal preserve in North America. The helicopter began to climb and headed toward the north end of the island. Grant was trying to see through the dense fog. It's not usually this thick, Hammond said. He sounded worried. At the north end of the island, the hills were highest, rising more than 2,000 feet above the ocean. The tops of the hills were in fog, but Grant saw rugged cliffs and crashing ocean below. The helicopter climbed above the hills. Unfortunately, Hammond said, we have to land on the island. I don't like to do it because it disturbs the animals. And it's sometimes a bit thrilling... Hammond's voice cut off as the pilot said, Starting our descent now. Hang on, folks. The helicopters started down, and immediately they were blanketed in fog. Grant heard a repetitive electronic beeping through his earphones.
but he could see nothing at all. Then he began dimly to discern the green branches of pine trees reaching through the mist. Some of the branches were close. How the hell is he doing this, Malcolm said, but nobody answered. The pilot swung his gaze left, then right, looking at the pine forest. The trees were still close. The helicopter descended rapidly. Jesus, Malcolm said. The beeping was louder. Grant looked at the pilot. He was concentrating. Grant glanced down and saw a giant, glowing, fluorescent cross beneath the plexi bubble at his feet. There were flashing lights at the corners of the cross. The pilot corrected slightly and touched down on a helipad. The sound of the rotors faded and died. Grant sighed and released his seatbelt. We have to come down fast that way, Hammond said, because of the wind shear. There is often bad wind shear on this peak, and, uh, well, we're safe. Someone was running up to the helicopter, a man with a baseball cap and red hair. He threw open the door and said cheerfully, Hi, I'm Ed Regis. Welcome to Isla Nublar, everybody, and watch your step, please. A narrow path wound down the hill. The air was chilly and damp. As they moved lower, the mist around them thinned, and Grant could see the landscape better. It looked, he thought, rather like the Pacific Northwest, the Olympic Peninsula. That's right, Regis said. Primary ecology is deciduous rainforest, rather different from the vegetation on the mainland, which is more classical rainforest. But this is a microclimate that only occurs at elevation. On the slopes of the northern hills, the majority of the island is tropical. Down below, they could see the white roofs of large buildings nestled among the planting. Grant was surprised. The construction was elaborate. They moved lower out of the mist, and now we could see the full extent of the island stretching away to the south. As Regis had said, it was mostly covered in tropical forest. To the south, rising above the palm trees, Grant saw a single trunk with no leaves at all, just a big curving stump. Then the stump moved and twisted around to face the new arrivals. Grant realized that he was not seeing a tree at all. He was looking at the graceful, curving neck of an enormous creature rising fifty feet into the air. He was looking at a dinosaur.